Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatech compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles. We win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Oh! Wonderful shot by Lennox Lewis! A right hand by Holyfield! By Boston Douglas! Look at this! He's knocked by Tyson down for the first time in his career! But unfortunately, it'll never happen. Crunch! I have to say, there seems an element of genuine hate between these two, Ambrose. For sure. I don't hate the man. Just imagine if you bought a ticket. Stop it, Greg. You can stop it any time. Castillo's in trouble. Weak steps in, and the fight is over. Oh! Welcome back to the Legendary Nights podcast. This is episode four of season four. And today's tale is all about the legendary Sugar Ray Robinson versus Carmen Basilio. A tale which we haven't had the pleasure of covering in great detail and only mentioned these two fighters in passing in Sugar Ray Robinson's career profile. And we've talked about Sugar Ray Robinson in his legendary night with Jake LaMotta. But this is a tale which is very underrated, and I hope that everybody appreciates the fights that these guys had and the tale that it actually provides. It's a story I didn't really know a great deal about, despite the fact we've done a career profile on Sugar Ray Robinson. This is going to be something different for you guys to get your teeth into. You're going to learn more about Sugar Ray in this episode than what we've already presented to you in the past. But most importantly, you're going to get to learn a lot more about Carmen Basilio, someone, again, who we've only mentioned in passing in other people's episodes. So I really hope you enjoy this episode and this tale. And Johnston, I'm going to hand it to you to have an introduction to this episode and and what your perception of this will be for the listeners. Well, I'm a huge, huge admirer of boxing in the 1950s. Not necessarily because it's the best era of boxing, as Sugar Ray Robinson existed, and obviously he was a tremendous fighter in the 40s and 50s, but 
because there's the mafia involvement as well. And I, and I have a bit of a fascination with the mafia and, and the mafiosos that moved into boxing. So obviously they're going to come up in this episode. So with that all incorporated into this fight, it's uh, it, it just it's always it's very fascinating. I absolutely love it. I love the history of this era and this decade in particular. And it's just great to do stuff on Sugar Ray Robinson. Uh, we've done a lot. Obviously, his career profile. He's a legendary knight with Jake LaMotta. But as you say, Carmen Basilo, not much has been done with him. And and I've huge admiration for this guy. A journeyman turned into a world champion. I mean, what better story than that? Now, we're going to start this tale with Carmen Basilio, who grew up on an onion farm in Canastota, upstate New York. Hence why he became known as the upstate onion farmer. Now, by 1951, he was nothing but a journeyman who had been fighting as a welterweight with a modest record of 25 wins, 7 defeats and 3 draws before he entered the ring on September 26, 1951. Former boxer Greg Sorrentino explained his current position at this time and he said he drove down to New Orleans to fight Ross Virgo for 700 bucks. He broke his hand, which cost him the fight. Besides having mono, with the lymph nodes under his arm the size of golf balls, he ran into a blizzard on the way back driving on Route 11. The window in the car was broken. His hand was broken. All for a lousy $700. His take was 30%, with the rest going to his managers. So what did he end up with? He couldn't fight and he couldn't work. He had to put a big, oversized glove over his broken hand so he could make 50 cents an hour shoveling sidewalks for the city of Syracuse. I mean, if that's not hunger, he deserved to make it because he made himself make it. Carmen was struggling to find himself as a fighter. He had a broken hand and his career was put on hold and he recalled himself. I got a job and I began to work for the auto light company as an assembly generator. One day I'm working. I look back and there's my boss staring at me and I said to myself, am I going to spend the rest of my life having that boss looking at me. No way, I said. I'm making a comeback. Well, to do that, he had a change in management and Carmen actually described that the past couple of years I had been working with the Amos brothers. I had quite a few fights with them. It became clear that I wasn't going any place with them. They become greedy and they didn't care about me and all they were interested in was money. They weren't going to the gym. They weren't teaching me anything. I was going to the gym by myself and all that. They never came around anymore. So another former boxer who was actually stable mate, who's Dickie Di Veronica, actually remembered that Carmen was getting no management in the early 1950s. These two brothers didn't care a lick about him. They would throw him in with an experienced fighters. They didn't care. He wasn't ready yet for that type of competition. Carmen would fight anybody that is why he had a number of losses to guys he would have destroyed a few years later so Carmen's boxing career changed for the good when John DeJohn actually approached him with a plan of action to get his career back on track now DeJohn would become his trainer and John Nitro would assist him doubling as a business manager Nitro was well-connected and would handle all the public relations, sending out information about Carmen to newspapers and promoters, making sure that his name was out there. Now, while DeJohn 
was shrewd enough to turn Carmen into a more rounded fighter, Basilio reflected that I was a rough, tough, walk in front of a guy slugger, winded up on my punches, telegraphing them, everything. He made me put all that away and started all over again from scratch. And the three actually formed a very strong partnership that would last for the remainder of his career. Common was clear about what he wanted from them, and that was honesty and trust. Carmen said, I was still working my day job when I met Dijon and Nitro. I told them, if you rob me, you rob yourself because I will quit fighting. Don't rob me and I won't rob you. Carmen learned fast and would soon become the terror of the welterweight division. It was an instant success as Basilio won his next three fights early in 1952, which led to a bout against the Irish welterweight Chuck Davey, the former NCAA featherweight champion who was a slick southpaw. He had become a very popular fighter on television and was being nurtured by the International Boxing Club president, James Norris, for a match with the then welterweight champion, Kid Gavilan. Norris wanted Davey to have a few more fights before challenging Gavilan, beginning with Carmen Basilio. Their fight had originally been scheduled to take place in Syracuse for early April 1952, but was rescheduled twice to allow a supposed court Davey suffered during training to heal. Finally, on May 29th, 1952, the two aspiring welterweights met and we will let Carmen's friend, Donny Hamilton, describe how he saw it. He said, When Carmen fought Chuck Davey, it was a hell of a fight. Three things happened. Joe Palmer was the referee for the fight. Also, it was Carmen's first main event fight under the promotion of Norm Rothschild. The Davey people wanted to get out of the fight after they signed for it. Norm said no. Johnny Dijon said, we want to fight this guy. So they held them to it. That was probably the biggest crowd up to that time that Carmen ever fought before. Carmen went after him, busting him over both eyes. In the 10th round, Joe Palmer stops the fight. He took David over to Dr. Heck and he let the fight continue. Yeah, so Donny Hamilton actually continued and he said when the final bell rang, Carmen got a split decision. That night, he won the fight. Four days later, they found a mistake on Joe Palmer's addition, so they ended up throwing his scorecard out and actually called the fight a draw. The great thing about it was it went over all the major wire services. That was a first for Carmen. So he's on the radio and, yeah, he gets done over. So the overturn of the decision actually forced a rematch six weeks later but before we come to that, we're going to move over to the opponent for this towel, Sugar Ray Robinson, who was the dominant force in the middleweight division by the summer of 1952, cleaning up his second weight class just like he had done as a welterweight. Seemingly, there was no more for him to do. He was already going on to be one of the greatest of all time at this point, but he dared to become even greater, and he decided to try and emulate the likes of Henry Armstrong and Bob Fitzsimmons by claiming another world title in a third weight class. The opponent chosen was the reigning ring and lineal light heavyweight champion and that was Joey Maxim who was actually managed by Jack Doc Kearns and that was the same guy who had guided Jack Dempsey and Mickey Walker and Jack Dempsey's career profile going to have a 
listen to that and Doc Kearns obviously comes up a lot in that. So Maxim had been the world champion since 1950, had only ever lost to the great Ezard Charles since 1948 and all three of those defeats against Ezard Charles actually came in the heavyweight division. Now Ray's trainer was confident that his man would win this fight even though he would be giving away 15 and a half pounds in weight. He also knew that Maxim even with the weight advantage, couldn't knock Ray out because he just wasn't known to be a heavy puncher. The other potential candidate for Ray Robinson was a fight against the great Archie Moore. Now, that would have been a lot harder task to deal with than obviously Jay Maxim. So many observers actually favoured Maxim. Their logic was a good big man could always beat a good little man. However, Ray wasn't just a good little man. He was great. So his fans would counter the experts, calling Robinson a great little man who was taking on a mediocre big man. The fight was scheduled for Monday, June 23rd, 1952, but was postponed until Wednesday night because of rain and cold. The irony of that change of day impacted the result because by Wednesday, the weather had changed dramatically. The day they rescheduled the fight went into the record books as the hottest June 25th, in the history, 104 degrees at ringside and over 130 degrees in the ring with the additional heat coming from the ring lamps. Ray boxed superbly throughout, schooling Maxime and many felt it was Ray's best performance. In the 10th round, referee Ruby Goldstein was so groggy that he couldn't even work out who was hitting who, so he had to be substituted for a new ref, Ray Miller. By this stage, both fighters had slowed considerably, but Ray was clearly feeling it more because he did a lot more of the work. By the 12th round, Ray Robinson was staggering and stumbling back to his corner, and then in the 13th, he missed a right hand and fell flat on his face. It was after the round that Ray was held back to his corner, and during the minute break, they tried their best to revive their man using ice packs, smelling salts, and even physiotherapy. But all of this was in vain. In the end, it was heat exhaustion that prevented Ray Robinson from winning a third world title in a third weight division. He had no choice but to retire in his corner. The only recorded stoppage defeat in his whole entire career. Incredibly, Maxime had actually lost £9 in the ring and Robinson £11 in weight because of how hot it was at ringside. Absolutely insane. Uh, Jerry Maxim actually spoke on the fight and he said that Robinson's punches began losing steam in the 11th. I knew he was getting ready to go. If he had to come out in the 14th, I would have knocked him out. Well, Ray, obviously, he disagreed. He said, I lasted longer than Goldstein and nobody was hitting him. Maxim didn't beat me. God did. And Herb Boyd actually explained what happened to Robinson after the fight in Ray's biography. He said... Sugar had a restless night and Edna May, who was his wife, was not much better. The next morning, she was alarmed to discover that Sugar's body was actually covered with fever blisters, which were the result of his boiling blood. Despite reports to the contrary in his autobiography, for several days, Sugar was ill, unable to go anywhere. And Sugar's son, Ray Jr., actually recalled that Sugar was totally dehydrated after the fight. People don't know how near dying Dad was. 
He could not retain anything in his stomach for two days and he was delirious and was not well for six months after the fight. Edna May actually wrote that the fight had been a sobering experience for Sugar. He later announced his retirement and was ready to listen to the wonderful offers that were being waved in front of his face to try a career in show business. I thought with the right teachers, Sugar could do anything. And, well, Ray Robinson actually admitted himself, said, I began to think seriously about retiring because Dr. Nadello had advised me to take a long rest from boxing. I had developed a friendship with a guy called Joe Glaster, the president of the Associated Boxing Corporation, one of the biggest agents in show business. He had actually handled Barbara Streisand. And he actually said, if you're ever interested, he told Sugar several times, I'll book you as a dancer when you retire. Well, I was interested now. So, while Ray retired and went into show business, the boxing world would continue without him. A month later, Carmen Basilio lost his rematch against Chuck Davey in Chicago. His handlers were furious with the decision, but it was a close fight. Carmen recalled, It was a lousy house decision. If this fight was fought anywhere else, they would have stopped it. It's nice when you're on the right side, the IBC side. He can't fight. Fast, but no punch. They watched him like a mother hen watching chicks. He couldn't lose. Not here. I want a rematch, but I ain't got much chance of getting one. Well, Carmen had a very busy 14 months following his bitter loss to Chuck Davey, fighting nine times, which included Ike Williams and three tough matches with Billy Graham. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. The first Graham fight came straight after his knife professional defeat in Chicago on August 20th, 1952. The Associated Press wrote on that bout and they said the 30-year-old New Yorker, a masterful boxer, had no trouble in outscoring the willing but outclassed Basilio from start to finish. Graham, a dancing speedster, pumped tantalising left jabs into Basilio's face until old cuts in Carmen's eyebrows oozed blood. Basilio's face was crimson from Graham's rasping right-hand punches and straight lefts. Basilio lost a clear, unanimous decision that was shown live on Ray Arcel's Saturday Night Fights on the ABC network. These shows, selected by Arcel, were not in competition with James Norris, who was satisfied as long as none of the ABC fights would originate from New York City. It was after the Graham defeat that Carmen recalled his first encounter with Ray Robinson, and he said, I took my wife to New York City and we were walking down Broadway and this pink Cadillac pulls up. Sugar Ray Robinson, 
and a group get out and I says, I want to meet him. He did. Duffer Legends this story and Karma continued. He said, I went up to him. I introduced myself. I said, I just fought Billy Graham last weekend on television in Chicago. He gave me the brush off and I was embarrassed. I said, Sunday, I'm going to fight that arsehole and I'm going to kick his ass." Great, love that line. And Carmen, well, he got back to winning ways anyway, obviously, after being pissed off with Sugar Ray. Uh, with three wins on the bounce in, uh, to end 1952 and three wins to start 1953. And one of those came against Ike Williams in Syracuse at the Memorial Stadium. And in the fourth round, the two fighters actually bumped heads with Basilio suffering a cut over his right eye. Now, Angelo Dundee was in his corner as we did mention his career profile, have a listen to that. Uh, he's got some great stories on Carmen. Uh, so he was in his corner that night as the cut man, and he patched him up between rounds, and it was never a problem for the remainder of the fight. Great cutsman, actually, Angelo gets overlooked there, helping Basilio go on and actually beat Ike Williams by unanimous decision. Ike Williams was actually complimentary of Carmen Basilio after the fight. He said, Basilio is a good fighter with a great future. He could take a punch, I hit him with some great shots, but he took them and just kept coming. So Carmen was also complimentary on his opponent, Ike Williams. He gave his opponent a lot of praise. He said that Ike is the hardest puncher I ever faced. I got him close and he hit me two shots in my forearms that picked me off my feet. So I said to myself, he's not going to hit me again. And he didn't thank, he didn't thank goodness. Uh, Ike's a tough guy, he said. So... <laughs> He's literally killing Carmen's arms there. So, uh, a huge puncher. So, Carmen was now fast becoming the star attraction for Ray Arcel's Saturday night fights. Donnie Hamilton, again, he put his turn in fortunes to down to his defeat, actually. So, it was the defeat that he felt was a turn in fortune for Carmen Basilio. That defeat came against Billy Graham. He said what turned Carmen around was when he fought Billy Graham in Chicago. Graham beat him decisively, but he learned from that fight how to get past the jab. If you look at his record after that, he lost very few fights from then on. He just kept on improving. This form led to a rematch against Billy Graham, where he gained revenge against Brawling Billy in Syracuse for the New York welterweight title. Six weeks later, they had their rubber match once again in Syracuse, with this one scored a draw. The United Press reported Basilio forced the fighting in the early rounds and appeared to have an advantage in the first half of the bout, but he tired and suffered a severe pounding from Graham's solid left jabs in the closing round. At the end, Basilio was bleeding freely from a gash beneath his left eye and from the nose. He fought the last three rounds with his left eye practically closed. Ray Arcel was now planning to give Carmen a non-title shot against the welterweight champion Kid Gavilan on his Saturday Night Fights programme. However, John DeJohn dove into the belly of the beast and ended up getting his man a world title fight to be hosted by the IBC. The venue was agreed to be staged in Carmen Basilio's backyard, Syracuse, New York. DeJohn was then summoned to New York in the summer of 1953 to have lunch with Frankie Garbo. Dickie Di Veronica explained that John DeJohn had to deal with the mob guys. That's the way business was conducted in those days. Carmen, he never had any dealings with those guys. He didn't want anything to do with them. 
What happened next was described in Gary Human's book, The Onion Picker, Carmen Basilio and Boxing in the 1950s. And it reads, Arriving at the Warwick Hotel, Dijon was surprised that Angelo Lopez, Kid Gavilan's trainer, was seated next to Carbo. Dijon, on the trip to New York, kept on going over in his mind what Carbo wanted to see him about. All he knew was that Carbo said it would be very worthwhile for the two of them to get together. Gary Humans continues, he says, Dijon wasn't sure it involved Carmen Basilio or one of his two brothers. So Carbo had been a bit evasive on the telephone on why he wanted to uh, get together. The John seeing Lopez sitting there knew why Carbo wanted to get him together with them. He was thinking of matching Basilio up against the world champion. Frankie Carbo's plan was simple. He wanted to get Basilio away from Ray Arcel and get him fighting for the International Boxing Club. The bait would be a shot at the welterweight crown. Fought in Basilio's backyard, Syracuse, New York. Carbo knew that Basilio didn't like the IBC because of the Davy fight. And he had heard Basilio, he just didn't like him. Carbo couldn't care less what a fighter's opinion was about him. This was about making money. And as Gary Humans describes, Carbo began. He said, look, John, if you let Basilio fight Gavilan, You guys will make more money than you have ever had before. What do you mean by a lot of money, replied the John. Carbo then smiled, reached into his coat pocket, and he pulled out a piece of paper. John, the standard rate for a challenger in a championship fight is 20%. The champion gets 40%. Everyone knows that. You know that you will draw a lot of money in Syracuse, which means you will make more than you have ever earned. It's simple supply and demand. Let me ask you, how many title fights have there been in Syracuse? I have a feeling this might be the first one. And if you win, you guys are going to make a lot of money. Now, before you say anything, I asked Angel here today to show you he's on board with this. And now I want this to happen in September in Syracuse. Are you with us? John DeJohn told Cabo. He had a deal. He knew that Carmen wanted the title fight, but would not be happy if he knew Carbo put it together. However, he thought, what the hell? It all seemed pretty much set in stone, but as Dijon recalled in the documentary, Carmen Basilio fighting the mob, if you went to Carbo and you told him a story, he didn't promise you nothing. But a week or two later, you got what you asked for. That moment came when Dijon remembered, I got a call from Jim Norris and he asked me to come down to New York. So I went down to see Jim Norris and he said, What's this? You want to make a fight in Syracuse between Gavilan and Basilio? What kind of money can you draw up there? I said, That fight there, being conservative, would do $75,000. Well, Norris liked what he had heard and outbid Ray Arcel for the title fight. But before we come to Carmen Basilio's first world title shot, we're going to catch up with what Ray Robinson was up to during this time. Ray had been booked into the French casino at the Paramount Hotel for four weeks at $15,000 a week. He followed that up with an engagement at the Sahara Hotel in Las Vegas, making another $60,000 for another month. Ray was making extraordinary money for a former fire. He explained in his autobiography, Glazer said seriously, Ray, 
I used to handle Bill Robinson, Bojangles, and I know what Fred Astaire and Gene Kelly have been paid for their nightclub acts, and you're making more per week than any dancer who ever lived. Ironically, Ray had stayed away from associates within the mob during his boxing career, but as soon as he moved into show business, he was instantly hooked up through his friendship with Joe Glazer. So Glazer was the son of a Chicago family of Russian Jewish origin, was actually also once the front man, so this is Glazer, was the front man for the Al Capone organisation and an influential fight promoter in Chicago. So Lawrence Begreen, author of Capone, wrote, Glazer's power to fix fights earned him a reputation as the sage of boxing, especially among reporters. Now, Vern Woolley, who actually covered boxing from the Chicago Evening Post, recalled that one day of a big fight, Glazer would give me the names of the winners in advance, even the round of a knockout. So with the help of his alleged mob connections, he actually started managing Louis Armstrong in May 1935, and the success of their association actually caused other jazz musicians to join Glazer and his agency, which was the Associated Boxing Corporation, which was formed in 1940 by Glazer and Louis Armstrong. Now, although his clients had a high opinion of him, Glazer was also a very feared person in the business industry. Associated Boxing Corporations, or ABC, or as it is known, has at various times represented Duke Ellington, Benny Goodman, Lionel Hampton, Woody Herman, Dave Brubeck, Barbara Streisand, and B.B. King as well, among many others. Glazer would actually help guide Ray's show business career and then later become his boxing manager. Now, Ray, obviously moving into the show business, business world, he actually brought his good friend and his trainer, uh, Pee Wee Bill, and his secretary, who was June Clark, for the showbiz ride. While the rest of his entourage departed. Now, he had a huge entourage. Go and listen to his career profile for that. He's got, he had a massive one. Now, when Ray Robinson actually began performing his dance routine, many were actually pleasantly surprised and even impressed by his tap number. However, Ray had actually struggled with his hand movement. So, at first explaining himself so in boxing he said uh, they have they have to be up all the time if you want to stay healthy in dancing you need to keep them down and natural it's been the toughest thing for me to master uh, jack gaver of the huntington daily news wrote the belief champion certainly doesn't seem to be having trouble with his feet jack gaver continued and he said his practice sessions on the stage at the daytime deserted french casino where he will make his debut as a performer, reveal a tap dancer with a variety of routines that are really professional. And he's only been taking serious instructions for a little more than two months, interjected Harry Latin, dance teacher who had prepared Robinson for his serious effort at a new career. Ray told Jack Gaver, I've liked dancing all my life. Stepping just sort of comes natural to me, but I really didn't know anything about how to do it right until I began to study under Henry. Far as I'm concerned, it's just as tough as training for a fight, maybe tougher. Red Smith of the New York Herald Tribune wrote, he said the toughest 10 moments of his life had begun backstage when a man said, champ, you're on in 10 minutes. When Ray reached Las Vegas, columnist Dave Lewis wrote, the man 
whose fist earns him the distinction of being one of the truly great boxers of all time, shook his head and said, I've never been so scared in my life. Sugar Ray Robinson was talking about his opening show a few minutes in the beautiful copper room of the Hotel Sahara. Robinson obviously was extremely nervous during what show people regard as his first real test as an entertainer. But like the champion he is, Sugar Ray conducted himself most admirably, and the first nighter audience, which included such famous personalities as Del Webb, owner of the New York Yankees, and Jack Benny, received him in a most enthusiastic manner. Frankly expecting a rather crude attempt at tap dancing, we were pleasantly surprised and even impressed by the first of three dance routines. It was a tap number with his partner during which they danced to several different tempos. Dave Lewis informed his readers that one professional dance with whom we talked remarked that Robinson's taps were remarkably clear. This is his fourth engagement and he's getting $12,500 per week for two weeks from Hotel Sahara. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people. And you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. That's the minimum weekly figure for which he has worked so far and which he will receive for his forthcoming 14-week swing through Chicago, Detroit, Milwaukee, Minneapolis, Indianapolis, Montreal, Toronto, etc. The guy was having it large. He said, I was even more panicky tonight until those good people started applauding. They really made me happy. So Ray, while Ray's literally just having a great time in the show business, well, clearly enjoying his retirement, what was Carmen Basilo doing? Well, he was in good spirits as he headed into his world title fight. And before it, he said, I feel great. I'm going to be the next welterweight champion of the world. Believe me, I'm going to be the next champion. It's a dream I've had for a long time. Nothing's going to get in my way. Kid Gavilan made the sixth defence of his world welterweight title in Syracuse, New York on September 18, 1953. And the champ entered the ring as a 4-1 to favourite to retain his crown. In the second round, it was the challenger that took the initiative when he fainted with a right, moved under Gavilan's jab and caught the champ with a left hook, knocking him to the canvas. Clearly shaken by the force of the blow, Gavilan was up at the count of eight. Still unsteady, the Cuban used his ring savvy and survived the round. Basilo kept up the pressure for the next four rounds but could not put Gavilan away, who boxed well for the second half of the fight. The fight went the full 15-round distance, and so it was down to the judges to decide who won the fight. Harold Barnes voted seven rounds to six, with two even, Gavilan. 
The other judge, Jim Kimball, had it seven rounds to five with three even, Basilio. And so, he was now left to referee George Walsh on who would be the winner. There was quietness in the building as it was announced that referee, George Walsh, had voted eight rounds to six with one even. The winner, and still welterweight champion of the world, Kid Gavilan. There was not a great reaction to that decision. A chair was even tossed in the direction of the ring, which kicked off a stream of booing and verbal abuse toward the referee. The security staff quickly formed a human blanket around Walsh and escorted him out of the arena. He was pelted with beer cans and unpleasant verbals. Kid Gavilan's handlers, aware of the unruly crowd, had their fighter exit quickly, who was also being verbally bashed on his way to his dressing room. The champ admitted that Basilio was a much tougher fighter than I expected. However, I think I beat him easily. After the first knockdown, he never did anything else to me, but the crowd, they yell every time he threw a punch and it made me look bad. John Dijon gave his thoughts on the decision when he said, I thought Carmen won the fight. He was the aggressor all night. We have been on the short end lately, but that is going to change. Carmen believed he should have been given the nod and he said, I was sure that I won that fight. To tell you the truth, I was so sure that I won that fight, I started to pace myself in the 10th round. I just didn't think that the fellow could beat me. Honestly, it wasn't a tough fight. He hit me with a few good shots, but he never hit me as hard as some of the fellows I've been fighting lately. I believe I deserve a rematch, and I think they will have to give me one. So in the dressing room an hour after the fight, Joe Nitro walked over to Carmen and knelt down to console his fighter, who was sitting alone with a towel over his head. And he told him, you'll get him next time, come. And Basilo replied, you're damn right we will. He weren't ready to give up. Never give up. Carmen Basilo had a great attitude. He never did get his rematch. He deserved it. Never got it against Kid Gavilan. Uh, he would have to wait two years before getting another shot at a weight crown. And next time, he'd make sure it wouldn't go to the decision. That's what he said. Uh, he would take care of business before that happened. Unfortunately for Basilio, Jim Norris and Frankie Carbo, well, they had other plans regarding the weight crown. First, Carbo decided to give a guy called Johnny Bratton another chance at the title, followed by a title match with his top lieutenants, Blinky Palermo, his fighter, Johnny Saxton. This fight was a blatant fixed fight, and Kid Gavin actually explained himself that this fight was very bad, but it was not my fault. If you have a man in the ring who does not want to fight, there is nothing you can do about it. I talked to Saxton in the clinches and begged him to start fighting. When that didn't work, I complained to the referee, but he do nothing. I don't like to talk about fixed fights, but I don't know anything about them. But I can't help wondering what those judges were thinking as Saxton held me locked in his arms. They must give him one point credit for every second he held me. I don't want nothing that I don't deserve. But I win at least nine rounds. Well, writer Dan Parker confirmed the fix was in when he wrote, Jack Kearns told some friends before the fight to send in all the money they had on Saxton. He said he couldn't lose. And in New York, many fans who tried to put money on Saxton, were actually told. So once all the money had gone on him, 
Loads of people tried to put money on Saxton. They were actually told they could only bet on Kid Gavilan. So all of the mafiosos could take their last big chunk. Dan Parker then wrote, After the fight, Palermo said there would be no return match for Gavilan. And before and after it, Goombar Carbo lavishly entertained fight mobsters from all over America at a hotel suite. He had a good reason to celebrate. Another writer, Fausto Miranda, wrote honestly that the gangsters robbed Gavilan. Let us say that all of Latin America is now going through this moment of witnessing the downfall of a great idol and a great champion by the bad faith of some judges. Gavilan was defeated by the -the behind-the-door manoeuvres of racketeers, the real owners of the pugilistic business in North America. The underbelly of boxing was openly now running the sport of boxing, the day after Basilio lost to Gavilan, Ray Arcel was assaulted outside the Boston Garden with a lead pipe. Please do go and check out our career profile on Arcel for more details. But his assault led to him leaving the sport for over 20 years. Without Arcel at the helm, Saturday night fights managed to continue, but they relocated to the west side of America and no longer in competition with the IBC. Dan Parker of the New York Daily Mirror bravely wrote, All of the evidence points to the conclusion that the brutal assault was motivated by revenge for Arcel's refusal to be intimidated by one of the several factions which resented his Saturday night television show. Now, while their mob held boxing by the balls, Ray Robinson, well, he was still touring the country and beyond in the showbiz world. Jack Gaver wrote for the United Press, he said, So, where was Sugar Ray? Tomorrow afternoon, he'll demonstrate... Still, another skill as a dramatic actor on the first broadcast of Excursion, the new television show for children put together by the Ford Foundation TV radio workshop on the NBC network. Yeah, Jack Gaver continued, he said, Sugar Ray will play the role of Jim in the program's uh, dramatisation of the Duke and the Dufane episode with Mark Twain's The Adventure of Huckabree Finn. A week later, Sugar Ray Robinson and his New York Review was playing at the uh, Casablanca Club at Canton, Ohio. He continued his tour, but it wasn't always enjoyable. And Dorothy Kilgallen was writing in her Voice of Broadway column. And this is what she said, interestingly. Uh, this never hit the newspapers, but while touring with the Count Bassie Band, Sugar Ray Robinson had the nose of a .45 poked into his ribs at the close of a one-night gig in Quincy High School Auditorium in Quincy, Illinois. Why the native drew the gun still remains a mystery. He didn't rob Sugar Ray, he just warned him to get out of town as soon as possible. So Ray didn't just leave town uh, during the tour, he actually ended up in Paris. He left America completely, went Paris to France by September of 1954, and the Washington Times actually caught up with him. And this is what they wrote. They said, Sugar Ray, we told him that we were surprised to see that he was still in Europe. And Ray replied, man, I've been here since June 23rd. I've been to the French Riviera, the Italian Riviera, and any other Riviera you can think of. We said we had heard about it and had even read some of the reviews in the French papers. And they weren't too flattering now. And Ray admitted, he said, yeah, I know that, but you see, I can explain that. 
So the crit, he said in his own words, the critics came to the first night and they didn't come back after that. The show was all jumped up the first night, you understand. And the fact that we were not able to understand French made our comedy limited. They then asked, were you sore at the press? And Sugar Ray replied, no, I can't say that. I was disappointed. But the one thing you learn in sports is you have to win or you have to lose. The descriptive article of their conversation with Ray continued and it read, What do you think they expected of you? Well, I guess they expected me to come out in my boxing shorts and hit the bag a few times and stuff like that. They didn't dig the tap dancing. But in Europe, they want you to do what you're famous for. Why, man, I stopped the show by coming out in my shorts and skipping rope in time to the music. That's the kind of stuff they liked over here. We asked him, when you take a beating in show business from critics, does it hurt as much as when you take a beating in a fight? Sugar Ray replied, man, when you take a beating in a fight, you know you're going to be all cut up and hurt bad. In show business, you take a psychological beating. It hurts, but it don't hurt nothing like being beaten in the ring. Robinson told Columnist he would love to stay in Europe, but he had signed contracts back home, and if he didn't go back, he would be sued, which he had no intention of being. When Ray returned to America, there was a lot of noise coming from within the boxing industry that he would be returning to the sport. James Norris was the first to indicate a return to the ring for the former welterweight and middleweight champion. He explained that, I believe Robinson will come back. I have a hunch he will. Robinson should have discovered by now that he can't make money as fast in the role of song and dance man as he could with his fists. Taxes and travelling expenses leave a performer with little profit nowadays. He also went on to say, because of the great interest in the middleweights, I believe Sugar Ray will come back. Yeah, not only was there an added incentive for returning to the ring to earn more money, but Ray was also becoming more scrutinised by the press by his weavering performances on the stage, in his personal life of Edna May, and the fact that his businesses were falling apart, which meant that taxes were not being paid. So in October 1954, Ray confirmed, I have the urge to fight again, but I won't make any final decisions until I see how I make out at training. But if I can't regain the condition that I was once so proud of, then I'll give up the idea. But a few weeks later, it was documented that he looked in great shape uh, when he boxed six round exhibition with a guy called Gene Burton at the Hamilton on Taro. Joe Glazer was clearly eager for Ray to make a return. He actually loaned Ray Robinson $112,000 to assist his comeback and advanced him another $10,000 more. As we've already mentioned earlier, Glazer was a very shrewd businessman, a bit of a gangster. If you're Al Capone's book man, you know, you're going to know the business. And he wouldn't hand over that sort of cash without some sort of backup plan. And he covered himself by taking out mortgages on the string of buildings and stores owned by Ray in Harlem, which was his future pension money as well. Now, due to the pressures outside of the ring, predominantly from the IRS, Ray came out of retirement. He needed boxing and boxing actually needed him. He was back in the ring on January the 5th, 1955 at the Olympia Stadium in Detroit. After a financial disagreement in December where Ray demanded more money, 
He eventually agreed to fight Joe Rindwan for the second time. Now, Rayad actually stopped the ex-Marine in 1950 by a six-round stoppage. And five years later, he did the same thing again. Another six-round victory, this time by a knockout. So he had a joint manager at this point. So Joe Glazer was his manager and George Gainford was actually restored as Ray's manager and trainer as well. So Glazer and Gainford were working together. And Glazer told Sugar Ray that I'm the boss now and I'm going to guide you to the title. Glazer wasn't impressed with the choice of opponent in his next fight after a 30-month layoff when he had told Truman Gibson of the IBC before the Ralph Tiger Jones fight, Jones is a little too tough for Robinson at this point. But Gibson stated that if Ray wanted to fight in Chicago, it would be Jones or nobody. Two weeks later, Robinson lost for only the fourth time in a glittering career to Jones in a very below-par performance. The Associated Press said he looked slow, his reflexes had gone and he was hit too many times. Sugar Ray didn't look too sweet after either. He was bleeding from his nose and cut over his right eye and afterwards in his dressing room he said, I have no alibis. That's one I lost. Let's get another fight. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Laser explained that the trouble with Sugar Ray was that he got out of the habit of keeping his hand up while he was dancing during the layoff. Ray was not being held in such high regard anymore. Writer Arthur Daly didn't hold back when assessing his performance against Tiger Jones when he wrote, He was not the Robinson of old, but an old Robinson. Another writer, Jimmy Cannon, felt the same and he said, Robinson at one time was a marvellous boxer. He isn't anymore. That's no disgrace either. The years did it to him and not Tiger Jones. After that surprise defeat, even his trainer, George Gainford, walked away, convinced his friend was washed up. Fortunately, Robinson's wife, Edna May, intervened and put the two back together. She convinced them that together they could still achieve great things. Ray decided his wife was right and he began once again focusing on his boxing skills. Ray took himself away for a two-month training camp at the Greenwood Lake where Gainford whipped him into shape for another tough opponent in Johnny Lombardo. So Johnny Lombardo actually pushed Ray the full distance in their fight and if it wasn't for a strong finish that got him the split decision, it would have derailed his comeback even further. Then after a stoppage win over Ted Ola, Ray admitted, I'm not ready for Bobo Olsen yet, and he was the current middleweight champion. He confirmed that I'm happy at my progress, but I'm just beginning to find myself. I'm not at a point where I'd want to or could fight Olsen. I want two fights this month until September. So after taking a decision over a guy called Garth Panther in California, Ray said in his autobiography that I had reached the point where the IBC wanted to give me a shot at Bobo Olsen's middleweight title. But first, I had to earn it with a good win over a contender. We settled for Rocky Castellani, who was ranked as the number one contender. He was a rangy, hard-hitting guy out of uh, Pennsylvania, 
who had lost a 15-round decision to Olsen in a title bout only a year before. He wanted another shot at Olsen, and he thought he could take me. So we got Olsen to agree that the winner would get a title shot. The match was made for July 22nd in San Francisco. Now before we get to that fight, let's move back over to Cohen Basilio, who had fought 11 times from November 28, 1953 to January 21st, 1955, winning nine and drawing two. During that time, Frankie Carbo and Jim Norris were not considering giving Cohen Basilio a, a shot at the title, not just yet in a way. So there was one marker that needed to be taken care of before Basilio got to centre stage, which involved Carbo's old friend from Boston, and that was Anthony Rip Valenti. His kid was Tony DeMarco, and he would get the first crack at the suspect champion at the time. And DeMarco actually ended up stopping Saxton, obviously a bit of a fraud champion, in the 14th round to win the World Away title. And of all days, April Fool's Day in 1955. Johnny Saxton was dejected over his loss to Tony DiMarco, a fighter he was favoured to beat. Saxton nor his manager, Blinky Palermo, saw this result coming, or they would have never accepted the fight. Saxton, in defeat, had in some ways earned more respect in his showing of tremendous heart throughout the fight. Saxton, to many fight fans, had looked more like a champion losing to DiMarco than he did beating Gavilan. He was confident his manager had the connections to get a rematch within 90 days and he would get his crown back. However, Frankie Carbo and Jim Norris didn't care about Saxon or what was in his best interests. They already knew who DiMarco would take on next. It had to do with the onion picker from Canasota. He had been put on the shelf for too long. Gary Humans explained how the fight came about in his book the onion picker Carmen Basilio and boxing in the 1950s, and he wrote, John DeJohn and Joe Nitro attended the DiMarco-Saxton fight in Boston, compliments of the IBC. Sitting ringside, they were both impressed by the way DiMarco took Saxton out in the 14th round. He had fought with the same determination that Basilio fought with, displaying fearlessness in his approach, willing to take two punches to be able to deliver one, Basilio, Dijon observed, was slightly better than DiMarco and the Syracuse trainer thought his guy was the better puncher. Also, Joe Nitro pointed out that nobody really gave DiMarco much of a chance against Saxton, which definitely worked to his advantage. They both knew there would be no overconfidence on Basilio's part if these two met in the ring. No question, it would be a real Donnybrook. For those that don't know what Donnybrook means, it means a free-for-all, a brawl. It would be a fight in the phone box. That is essentially what that fight would be. Yeah, and Gary Eubens then continued. He said, on returning to Syracuse, DeJohn actually received a call from Gabe Genovese about a proposed match between Basilio and DeMarco. Now, Genovese, a barber by trade, was the nephew of Vito Genovese, obviously the mobster, Vito Genovese, and in the 1930s, he had co-managed with Frankie Carbo, middleweight champion, Babe Risco. So he and Carbo over the years had become very close friends. And Genovese told DeJohn that he would be happy to speak with Carbo about finalising Basilio getting another title shot. Genovese said that he could put this fight together, but it was going to come at a price. Of course it was. 
and it would cost Basilio $5,000. And Dijon, anxious to get his guy a shot at DeMarco, actually agreed to the money. He wanted no delays or problems with this fight coming off. He told Genovese that first they would have to get Basilio's okay on it, but, but he would see that it all got worked out. He'd be back to him after he had talked with Carmen. So the cost of doing business was going up. But what options did DeJohn have? It's true. He either worked with these guys or he would be frozen out, would freeze out Basilio altogether. So John DeJohn and John Nitro, they went to Carmen's house that night after speaking with Genovese to explain the situation. DeJohn told Carmen that Genovese's relationship with Carbo would ensure the fight being arranged through the IBC. There would be no strings attached other than it was going to cost them $5,000. And Basilio apparently sat there silent, staring straight ahead. Finally, he turned toward DeJohn, stood up, looked at DeJohn straight in the eyes and said, John, I'm not going to give those bastards a dime. They don't deserve crap. They can't deny me forever. The public won't stand for it. Don't you understand that? Eventually, I'm going to get my chance. DeJohn replied, Carmen, if we don't give them a piece of the purse, there will be no fight. Carmen replied and said, Bologna, if they get paid, it comes out of you and Joe's side, but I don't want to know anything about it. The hell with those guys. I'll punch them in the mouth if they come near me. John, it's not right what they are trying to do. Gary Humans concluded that John DeJohn knew it was pointless to argue with Basilio about doing business with the mob. Carmen despised them and that wasn't going to change. There was no sense in getting him any angrier. He would have to handle this by himself. DeJohn and Joe Nitro drove home in silence, both knowing a tough decision needed to be made. The next morning, DeJohn called Genovese and told him to make the fight. On June 10th, 1955, Carmen Basilio took on the welterweight champion Tony DiMarco in front of a Syracuse crowd of over 9,000 fans jammed into the War Memorial, paying between $3 for a general admission ticket to $20 for a ringside seat. The area had not had a champion since Babe Briscoe, who won the middleweight title in 1935. It was a bit ironic that two mobsters, Gabe Genovese and Frankie Carbo, had a hand in both championships. First as managers of Briscoe, then facilitators of making the fight happen in 1955. DiMarco came into the fight riding a 16-fight unbeaten streak. A draw against lightweight champ Jimmy Carter in February 1955 was the closest he had come to losing. We mentioned earlier that Angelo Dundee was already in his corner as the cutman, and he explained how they came together when he said, My brother Chris originally hooked me up with Carmen. He needed a cornerman for his fight against Baby Williams, and I got the job. Angelo also explained why, he scared the hell out of me. Anjo continued, and what he said is what Carmen said to him. So Carmen said to Anjo when they first met, I just wanted to let you know I cut easily. <laughs> and Angelo Dundee said, that's the last thing a cut man wants to hear. Well, he was right. He started bleeding at the way, and that's what he used to say. And Angelo excused the expression, and the pun here would have his work cut out, of course, in this fight too. And it began... Uh, to turn in Carmen's favour as it reached the ninth round. Even though his face was, of course, awash with blood, 
DeMarco was so drained, he actually fell in the ninth and was decked twice in the tenth, but the champion refused to be beaten. Somehow, an exhausted DeMarco answered the bell in the twelfth. He refused to give in and just hand his title over. Now, while DeMarco refused to quit, Basilio met him in the centre of the ring, where he went for the finish, hitting DeMarco with a left-right combinations that signalled the end and forcing the referee to step in and end an absolute epic battle between two great compares. Carmen Basilio had achieved his dream finally. He was the welterweight champion of the world, journeyman to world champion, overcome with emotion. He actually collapsed to the canvas in tears and his mother Mary was led to the centre of the ring where she embraced her son, sharing this special moment with her grateful son. And standing by Carmen's corner, dressed in his suit and tie, was his father Joseph. An immigrant from Italy looked on with pride. It was just a great moment. And Carmen Basilio had fulfilled his dreams. And obviously he reflected on this fight. He said, I know a left really sent him spinning at the end of the 10th. But actually, I feel that the fight was won before that. During the 8th, I tagged him often and hard in the midsection. And in the 9th, he slowed to a walk. That was it. He couldn't move out of range. And I was able to shorten my shots. Believe me, Tony is an underrated fighter. Carmen admitted, he hurt me real bad in the first round, but the blow that seemed to shake me up in the third didn't hurt at all. Angelo Dundee was in awe of this kid Basilio, as he said, is the strongest welterweight in the sport and what a guy to work with in a corner. He makes us all look like brain busters. He does every single thing we tell him and he never disagrees or second guesses. However, managing to take instructions during such a brutal fight was not easy, Carmen said. I know I need plenty of advice, but when you're out there fighting, it's the loneliest place in the whole world and you're concentrating so hard, you don't hear a thing. Years later, Carmen recalled the magic moment as the greatest thrill I ever got in my life was in the ring at the War Memorial in Syracuse, New York on the night, June 10th, 1955, when they raised my hand as the new welterweight champion of the world. You can't explain those things. The thrill will never leave me. Afterwards, John DeJohn got in touch with Blinky Palermo because his fighter had a contract to fight the winner of Basilio DeMarco. Johnny explained his thoughts to Blinky. He said, listen, why don't you let Carmen fight DeMarco again and then you fight the winner? In the meantime, we can give you some money out of this deal. This is going to draw a lot of money. Palermo was happy with this arrangement and he replied simply, we'll wait. Blinky made an easy $10,000 for letting the DeMarco Basilio second fight happen while his fighter waited in the wings. With Carmen Basilio now the new world welterweight champion, the former two-weight world champion Sugar Ray Robinson had recovered from the Tiger Jones loss and was now ready for the elimination bout for the middleweight crown against the number one contender and two-to-one favourite Rocky Castellani. So Ray actually recalled a moment while he was preparing for the fight he said one morning when I was doing road work out there along the beach Olsen jogged by going the other way I said hi Carl I called he waved and said hi Ray but when he was out of earshot George Gainford actually laughed why'd you call him Carl George said that's his name I said Carl Olsen I know George replied but when a man is the champ you're supposed to call him champ he's not the champ he just ha- he just happens to have my title and the fight against uh, Olsen took place on July 22nd, 1955, 
at the Cole Palace in California in front of a crowd of 8,000, which produced a gate of just almost $40,000. The Associated Press reported that Robinson, on a comeback trowel after a title shot at the Song and Dance Racket, was almost in complete command except for the sixth round when he was knocked to his knees by a left hook and a right hand to the head. He made a three-point landing, then got to his knees and took the nine count. Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. John Kane of San Francisco Times wrote, looking out at the crowd through a cut right eyelid, Ray heaved himself off the canvas as the referee shouted nine. And he was back in the fight. Castellani moved in for the kill. But Ray tied him up inside. And fought his way back. To be given a split decision. The crowd gave the former champ. A terrific evasion. At the final bell. Drowning out the cries of robbery. From Rocky's corner. And manager Al Neiman. Shouting that he would protest the decision. To the athletic commission. Well John Kane then went on to write. That one of the greatest fighting machines in ring history is within one victory of came in the middleweight championship of the world for an unprecedented third time. John Kane continued and he said Sugar Ray Robinson is in line for a shot at Bobo Olsen's crown following a close split decision. The 34 year old stylist may give the current title holder a tough evening if he continues to regain his old touch. Oscar Fraley in his sports parade column wrote no champion has ever come out of retirement to win back a title. Yet boxing men, trainers, seconds and managers find Robinson an absorbing topic. Practically all of them believe that Sugar Ray can fight his way right back to the top. Ray was honest about his new style, admitting that he can't go into the ring and tap dance my way to victory. Those days are over and no one realises that better than I. The spring I once possessed is gone. Otherwise, I think... I have everything I had in my prime. That's why I'm certain I'll regain the middleweight title. While Ray Robinson began to prepare for his first world title fight in over three years, Carmen Basilio had won two non-title fights on the spin and was ready to battle Tony DiMarco once again. On November the 30th, 1955, in his first defence of the welterweight crown, a crowd of over 13,000 crammed into the Boston Garden to watch the second instalment of the Basilio DiMarco Wars. The challenger came flying out of the blocks, rocking Basilio in the fourth and almost knocking him out in the seventh, but somehow the champ survived. Angelo Dundee worked intensely between rounds to revive a stunned Basilio while challenging him to step it up. Carmen, that guy's got your title unless you go to the belly. Let's pick it up. 
Spiraco forced the action throughout the next three minutes, but the tide began to turn back in Carmen's favour in the ninth. Yeah, Basilio came surging back against the tyre in Tony DeMarco and began to take control of the fight. He attacked the midsection, as Dundee had suggested between rounds, with vicious combinations. DeMarco tried to stop Basilio's onslaught by grabbing and holding, but Carmen just kept up pressure until finally he knocked him down early in the 12th round. DeMarco, bleeding and physically drained, beat the count, but Basilio was waiting for him and he hit him with a blistering four-punch combination, sending him down as referee Mel Manning moved in to stop the fight. This rematch lasted just two seconds longer than their first encounter, and a relieved Basilio said, after the seventh round when he hurt me, I could see that he was getting tired, and it was a question of time until he ran out of gas. Angelo Dundee once again praised Karma's resilience, and his unyielding desire he said to be a good boxer you have to have a type of mentality that is rare you could say boxers are rare people and Carmen Basilio is the rarest of boxers there has never been anyone quite like him a stand-up guy who would outwork anybody to achieve his goal he's number one in my book the ring magazine actually voted it their fight of the year nudging their first fight in Syracuse the previous June to second place. The champion earned $74,490 for his efforts, which came to 40% and included radio and television fees. Nine days later, on December the 9th, 1955, at the age of 34, Sugar Ray Robinson was about to reclaim the middleweight title. He spoke of his preparations before the Bobo Olsen fight. He confessed against Jones, Castellani and those guys. I had to club fight. I must have looked something awful, but I couldn't do anything else because I had no legs. He then revealed that he felt in the best shape since returning to boxing. He said, now I run five miles a day and don't labour. My legs take running easier. I get up on my toes in the ring and move. I'm just starting to find as much of myself as there is left. The middleweight champion, Olsen, was the 3-1 to favourite and took the largest share of the purse at 35%, which was just over $61,000. Ray took 25%, which was 45.5k. However, shortly before the fight, he was tagged with an $87,000 federal tax charge. The Chicago Stadium hosted this significant moment in Ray Robinson's boxing career and 12,500 went in hope of witnessing history. What Ray did that night was nothing short of what the Associated Press headlined, a miracle. They also called it the most glorious victory of his long career. It was nothing short of a shock when the challenger, Sugar Ray Robinson, knocked out Bobo Olsen in the second round with a right-left combination that put the former champ flat on his back. Robinson had knocked him out before in 1950 inside 12 rounds and Archie Moore had done it in the light heavyweight division inside three rounds six months earlier. But for Ray to do it in his first world title fight in over three years was impressive. He had won the ring and lineal middleweight titles after being the underdog, which must have made it even sweeter for Sugar. But it also showed his class once again. Ray broke down after the fight, overcome with emotion after being vindicated by the press pre-fight. 
the new middleweight champion, said, I had to cry. I just couldn't believe it was all over. This comeback's been a ghost of a thing with me ever since Tiger Jones licked me here in Chicago Stadium. Incredible. And Ray continued, only a few people thought I should continue after that. And to them, I owe thanks. But many others said I didn't have a chance that I should quit for good. It was a very hard thing to swallow and very hard getting ready to continue. The victory was so one-sided for Sugar Ray that he actually refused to allow any financial difficulties to take away his enjoyment of becoming the middleweight champion. Other than the Tiger Jones loss, it had been a triumphant return to boxing. There was, of course, the same 90-day rematch clause in place that Bubble Olsen was willing to initiate. But before we come to their rematch, Carmen Basilio, of course, was basking in the glory of being the welterweight champion in 1956. His fight, as we said, as we told you earlier, Tony, against Tony DeMarco, was voted the fight of the year in 1955. And a Ring Magazine fan poll actually rated him the sport's most popular fighter. Basilio's second title defence would be against Johnny Saxton in Chicago on March 14, 1956. Now, Blinky Palermo, obviously Saxton's manager, was not licensed in New York, which prevented their fight from happening in Syracuse or Madison Square Garden. So Chicago became the obvious choice for the IBC, staging the bout at the Chicago Stadium. Common wasn't bothered. In fact, he actually praised Jim Norris in the press. He said, Mr. Norris is a gentleman and a man of his word. If it wasn't for Mr. Norris, I wouldn't have been champion. He's given me the opportunity to put myself where I am today. Common may have been happy with Mr. Norris, but he would not be happy with the final outcome against Saxton. In the third round, Saxton's glove was ripped, causing a stuffing to come out. His bare thumbnail scraped along Basilio's eyelid, causing it to bleed. The fight was halted until another glove could be located, giving each fighter a 10-minute rest. When the match resumed, Johnny Saxton continued to grab and hold Basilio, which forced referee Frank Gilmer to constantly break up the fighters and separate them. This frustrated Basilio because it broke up the rhythm of the fight and it prevented him from working on the inside. Each time he would position himself for some inside work, Gilmer would step between him and Saxton. This pattern would continue throughout the remainder of the fight and John Dijon couldn't believe what he was witnessing. The referee, in his mind, was preventing Basilio from fighting his fight. When the decision was announced, Johnny Saxton was awarded the unanimous decision to the dismay of the Chicago Stadium crowd of 12,145 who booed the result for over 10 minutes. Saxton was effectively handed the welterweight title thanks to the referee and were almost certain thanks to Blinky Palermo. 19 out of the 25 writers thought Basilio had won the fight. One of those writers, Jess Abramson, wrote, Do you know of a worse decision in a championship fight? The Saxton win over Gavilan in Philadelphia was bad, but nothing to compare with this. Carmen, of course, felt hard done by, and he believed, I always thought that the challenger had to take it away from the champion. Big. I know he didn't do that. That referee didn't help me. He's the same guy who had me here with Chuck Davey, and he did the same thing when we were punching in close. He broke it up. 
he took away one of the better weapons I had when he wouldn't allow me to punch on the inside. Saxton never hurt me. No, never. He can't punch with DeMarco. He's not anything like him. He just jabbed and ran. His only aim was to stay there for 15 rounds. He never tried to make a fight of it. So an hour later, sitting alone in the dressing room, his head down again, Carmen couldn't hide his disappointment. They stole my title. That referee gave me the worst of it. He wouldn't let me fight inside. He kept breaking us apart. I'll never fight in Chicago again. Now, I have to start over. With Carmen, Basilio needed to go back to the drawing board and clearly disappointed and hard done by completely just, well, fixed. I don't know whatever you want to call it. That it wasn't right. He should have won the fight. Sugar Ray Robinson was entering his full fight in total against Bobo Olsen. And he was out to prove that their third fight wasn't just a lucky punch, as some of the journalists had actually indicated. The three previous contests had been lopsided in Sugar Ray's favour, and he wanted to finish off Bobo once and for all. They faced off in Los Angeles on May 18, 1956, in front of a crowd of just over 20,000 at the Wrigley Field, setting a new California record for boxing receipts and grossing $228,500. Their fourth encounter lasted just two rounds more than their third as Ray retained the ring and the lineal middleweight titles just six months later. In the fourth round, Olsen got careless, leaving himself open, which, of course, the great Sugar Ray Robinson exploited, landing a solid right to the body, followed by a left hook to the jaw that dropped Bobo to the canvas. The explosive impact of the two lightning-quick punches turned Olsen's legs to jelly and he collapsed to the canvas on his back. As he attempted to get back to his feet, he actually fell back and the referee counted him out. It was Ray's 99th knockout victory in 145 fights, but Ray was disappointed that the fight didn't go any further. He said, I didn't get a chance to test my legs because the fight didn't go long enough. Ray then said that Bobo hit me hard in the third round, but that was his ruination. After that punch, he gained confidence and began coming in. I hit him flush on the jaw. I wasn't sure I had him until the count reached 10. The fight was financially rewarding for both fighters. Each received nearly $90,000, although $87,000 was reclaimed by the IRS on Robinson's unpaid taxes, leaving the champ with no profits. Now, we're going to let Robinson's co-manager, Ernie Bracker, explain why he was in such a financial mess at this point. He said, if you want to be nasty about it, there was stealing going on. It took several forms. A bartender in Sugar's Calf, for one, had taken the job for something like $125 a week and parlayed that into a pretty good deal. The day he was asked to leave, he did it gracefully stepping from behind the mahogany out the door into a brand new Cadillac. Several people were missing when we began to overhaul the situation. A quarter of a million was gone. The people didn't do it in a way which was noticeable at first. They simply took in the money from the various operations, gave Robinson his share and withheld the government's tax share. Somehow, the government never received the money. Ray's Aunt Blanche Holly added, Robinson was very young when he started these businesses in Harlem in 1945. He had confidence in his hired help and managers, but they lacked the qualities to run businesses properly. When Mr. Robinson returned from Europe in 1954, he found his businesses 
in appalling shape. In 1955, members of his family and experienced managers took over. Well, back to the boxing, and Ray's second convincing win over Bobo Olsen confirmed he was back and more than ready to battle the best middleweights around. Down in the welterweight division, Carmen Basilio was so frustrated over his loss to Johnny Saxon in Chicago that he decided to go to New York and ask the New York State Athletic Commission for their help. He pleaded with them to let Saxton sign his own contract. New York is the only place I can get a fair shot. Please allow him to fight in New York, he said. Commission Chairman Julius Helfand went on record stating that people like Blink among are welcome. He was adamant of not ever giving Saxton's manager a licence in New York State. Although he admired Basilio for his honesty and character, but had concerns about making allowances for Saxton to fight in New York. But at a meeting with Jim Norris, he told the commissioner that it was for the good of boxing to allow this match to happen in New York. Norris assured him he had nothing to do with the questionable decision that had incensed the public and that his organisation, the IBC, was being unfairly criticised for what happened. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. If a wrong had, had indeed been committed, then he, as in Helford, could right the wrong by allowing Saxon to sign to fight in New York. Helford respected Norris for siding with him against the Managers Guild, saying that more Crusaders need to come forward and be united in this battle. This is obviously against the mob. He said that boxers like Basilio need to feel that they can get a fair shake wherever they fight. So Julius Helfand allowed the fight to happen in New York, but by doing so, he was actually benefiting a guy who he was trying to run out of boxing. He was also benefiting the likes of Frankie Carbo and, of course, Blinky Palermo and all their other associates. But Syracuse boxing promoter, Norm Rothschild, had put Syracuse actually on the map as a good fight town. And Jim Norris and Ray Arcel had been, obviously, co-promoted television matches before that, with Colin Basilio obviously being that star attraction on those Ray Arcel Saturday night fights. Now, when the bigger arenas were not available for television, Syracuse became the backup. And Gabe Genovese agreed with Rothschild that the fight would generate a nice gate in Syracuse, but said Norris and Carbo were planning for the fight to be held in New York. So Rothschild asked Genovese what could be done to get this fight moved from New York to Syracuse. The nephew of Vito Genovese said that Carbo owed him a favour, but it would cost him to get the fight transferred to Syracuse. How much? Rothschild asked. It'll cost you $10,000. Rothschild thought 10000 was a bit extravagant, but after consulting with Jim Norris, he agreed to the deal. A week later, Johnny Saxton signed a contract to defend his title against Carmen Basilio in Syracuse. The Arena Boxing Club would co-promote the fight with the IBC of New York and Genovese and Carbo each made an extra $5,000. Donnie Hamilton backed the Syracuse promoter even though he had to do business with the mob. He said, 
Norm Rothschild was one of the most honourable men I ever met. A good guy who loved Syracuse and he loved boxing. He had no choice but to work with those guys. Otherwise, the area would not have had those great fights. On September the 12th, 1956, the reigning welterweight champion, Johnny Saxton, was greeted with a chorus of boos as he entered the arena to face Carmen Basilio. When Basilio climbed into the ring, the crowd stood and cheered his every movement. Basilio controlled the fight from the first to the eighth round as Saxton began to tire. A confident Basilio told his cornerman, Angelo Dundee, that the end was near and said, I'm going to knock him out, Angelo. It's coming soon. Good, let's get out of here. You don't get paid extra for going 15 rounds, replied Dundee. See you soon, Basilio shouted back as he charged out for the ninth round. A minute into the round, Basilio caught Saxton with a left hook that dazed the champion, forcing him backwards. Basilio stalked him, landing a right hand to the jaw that wobbled his knees. Now defenceless, Basilio pushed him against the ropes where he rained punch after punch on him, knocking him senseless. And that assault on Saxton forced the referee Al Bell to move in and stop the fight while the former champ began to tumble to the canvas. Acting quickly, the ref grabbed the hurt fighter and helped him back to his corner. Colin Basilio had regained his title in one of the most inspiring performances. In his mind, he had righted a wrong. He wept openly in the ring, overcome with the emotion of completing his mission. Prior to the fight, a cocky Blinky Palermo had told the press... You fellas keep saying that my boy won the title with the help of the officials who robbed Basilio. Well, tonight, he's going to prove everybody that he's the master. He'll fight Basilio's style and beat him at his own game. He'll prove he's the better man. Well, following the fight, Palermo had a different take, saying it was the referee's fault his guy lost. He did a bad job. He never should have stopped the fight in the ninth until Johnny had hit the deck at least once. Then he strangely told the press an exact opposite to what he said prior to the fight. This guy does what he wants. I don't want to criticise Whitey Brimstein, he said, for I think he did a fine job in the corner with that cut. But if it had been me in the corner, I wouldn't have allowed Johnny to fight with that bad tear. Carmen fought a good fight, but I can't understand why my boy changed his style. A bit of a sore loser, but... It was nice to see and hear Blinky Palermo ruffled in public and the strain of his future departure from the sport was clearly beginning to take its toll. Promoter North Rothschild's investment to make this fight happen in Syracuse had been well spent and as the fight produced a record gate of 134951 Saxton actually took home 40% with his television fees amounted to 75000 and Basilio received 20% for his efforts, which ended up at 37,662. The new welterweight champion said he was through with fighting for the remainder of 1956, and that he and his wife Kay were heading up to the Thousand Islands on a well-deserved holiday. He would let his manager, John DeJohn, figure out the next fight. Basilio was then asked how he would do against Sugar Ray Robinson, and he gave a confident reply. If I fight him, I'd lick him. I'd weigh 100 to 151 for the bout. John DeJohn told the press the following day, We are not interested in Robinson. He will have to adjust his mathematics to make a fight with Basilio happen. Well, a few months later, the IBC actually matched Ray Robinson with Gene Fulmer, set for December the 12th at the Garden. 
in November in New Haven, Connecticut, Ray outpointed Bob Bravise in a 10-rounder to clock up some rounds in the bank before facing the rock-solid Fulmer, who was 11 years younger. Ray was not bothered by the age difference, the champ said. I never heard of anyone winning a fight with a birth certificate. The original planned fight date was then rescheduled when Robinson claimed he was sick with a virus. This 25th postponement of his career rankled Fulmer because he and his handlers would miss Christmas at home. Robinson's sudden illness only added to Fulmer's frustrations of dealing with the problematic champion. It started when Sugar Ray had demanded an outrageous split of the purse before he would agree to the fight. Fulmer was offered 12.5% to fight for the middleweight title, which infuriated him. But it was his father who convinced him that by beating Robinson, there would be bigger paydays down the road. Fulmer reluctantly accepted it, but it caused tremendous animosity leading into the fight, which now had a date changed to January the 2nd, 1957. Yeah, and Gene Fulmer said, I, I wouldn't want to fight Robinson if I didn't deserve it, but I think I've worked hard for the chance. I'm ready for him and I think he is ready to be taken. I know I can do it. And Ray actually staged a public workout where he looked in excellent condition afterwards and he declared that he was mentally and physically fit for the up-and-coming fight and there would be no excuses from him if he didn't successfully defend his crown. However, he later explained that this was not the case at all. And Ray actually explained this in his autobiography, that it all started when he developed this virus. And the new date was changed to January 2nd, but I was having trouble sleeping, he said. How about some sleeping pills, I asked Dr. Nardello. No, he said. I don't want you to get used to them, but I'll give you a few tranquilizers. By bedtime, you'll be so relaxed, you'll go right to sleep. I was so relaxed, I went to sleep in there with Fulmer. The tranquilizers had lulled me. That night I was in the ring, but Ray Robinson wasn't. Fulmer's style bothered me too. He had a bar and brawler's style, which I hadn't expected because Mormons don't drink, he said. Well, Robinson was actually flawed in the seventh, cut and soundly whacked to the body throughout before losing a unanimous decision. An announced crowd of 18,134 the highest attendance in years for boxing, apparently, witnessed an ageing champion ineffectively hold back the advances of a swarming gene former and father time. And Martin Kane wrote, So passes the brightly lighted Robinson era. It ended in the 15th round when the plodding tortoise beat the flashy hare once again, as he always does in the fable. Sugar Ray Robinson had fought he was living another kind of fable, which is what the hare always thinks. Sugar Ray said afterwards, There is nothing I can say but the better man won tonight. I certainly wasn't as sharp in my punching as in other days. I never have missed so many punches in my life. But you must not forget that this fellow Fulmer is tough. I hit him good enough to finish him several times, but he blinked his eyes and just kept coming. I don't know whether age has anything to do with my showing tonight. I felt good most of the way. The only point about the difference in ages tonight might have been that when you are younger, you can take it better. Ray added that although Fulmer got the 15-round decision, at least I got $140,000 and the IRS agents let me keep it. Ray sent his representative, Ernie Bracker, 
over to the IBC offices to get his money, where Bracken met with Norris, who outlined his thoughts about a return bout, assuming Robinson was interested. Bracker assured Norris that Robinson was interested and that Sugar Ray would be in touch with him in a few days to fine-tune the proposed contract. Talking of contract, Cameron Basilio signed for a third fight against Johnny Saxton on February the 22nd, 1957. He said, I'm always happy when I sign for a fight. I know that I'm going to go into training. I like to train. It means that I'm going to get away from the banquet circuit and I get a little bit of peace when I'm in training. The phone doesn't ring and I can relax. Kay Basilio, his first wife, agreed and said every time Carmen is booked for a fight, he is overjoyed. He tells people he's only in the boxing for the money. I know it's really in his heart. Carmen trained in Miami at Angelo Dundee's 5th Street gym, away from the snow and cold of central New York. So the condition of his right hand actually uh, continued to be the main topic of conversation leading into the rubber match of Saxton. The fight originally scheduled for January 18th was pushed back five weeks to February the 22nd, 1957 to allow the champion's sore hand to heal. He had never been right since he hurt it in the second DeMarco fight and this caused some concern with how healthy Basilio would be for this second title defence. This was the first championship fight in Cleveland, Ohio since Sugar Ray Robinson knocked out Jimmy Doyle in June 1947 and sadly, Doyle later died from uh, injuries actually suffered during the fight. And please do go back and listen to our Ray Robinson career profile for more details on that tragic story. So a disappointing crowd of 8,514 turned out to watch this third and final instalment of Basilio Saxton. And it was over in just two rounds. Basilio knocked Saxton down with a left hook in the second round. But although the challenger climbed back to his feet, the referee had seen enough and ended the bout. The Cleveland Arena erupted in cheers for Carmen Basilio, who had put on another impressive performance. And he explained himself, I knew I had him in the first round when I hit him with that left hook. Those headshots were all right, but those punches to the body took it out of him. I certainly hit that fellow with a lot of leather. The Ring Magazine editor, Nat Fleischer, wrote, A throwback to the days when champions were truly fighting men. Carmen Basilio, the former onion farmer, cut loose with a two-visted attack that put an end to an aspirations of Johnny Saxton to regain the crown he had lost to Carmen. The fans love a hard-hitting champion and they have one in Carmen Basilio. He had decisively defended his title with an impressive knockout and his injured hand was still in good shape. The champion had used it just enough to set up his left hook which ended the fight. His last two fights against Saxton and his thrilling two knockouts of Tony DiMarco made him arguably the hottest box office fighter at that time. There were no more worthy welterweights to fight that excited his fans or him. It was time to move up to the middleweight division and look at a championship fight outdoors at either the Polo Grounds or Yankee Stadium against the winner of the upcoming rematch between the new champion, Gene Fulmer, and Sugar Ray Robinson, which would draw huge numbers. The following day, the champion met with the media at the Hotel Statler in downtown Cleveland and spoke openly and honestly about his future in boxing. Look, as long as I can win and make money, I will keep on fighting. The strain is beginning to tell, especially on my family. My wife takes these fights harder than I do. 
when there's no money and the fights are tougher, it will be time to get out. I would like to fight the winner of the upcoming Robinson Fulmer bout next summer because I don't believe there are any welterweights out there that I can't lick. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Well, the return fight between Fulmer and Robinson happened four months after their first on May the 1st, 1957 at the Chicago Stadium. Ray once again was faced with a must-win situation, with many writers across the country believing his career was now over. Boxing was a young man's game, and the 37-year-old former champion had stayed too long. He should have known better after what happened to his close friend Joe Lewis when he had stayed too long in boxing. Robinson didn't believe that he was through as a fighter and trained hard for the rematch, focusing on his timing and fundamentals. Pride was a major factor, but the need for money was his main driving force. So into the fight and Fulmer was the more aggressive after the first three rounds, giving him the early lead while Robinson remained on the back foot, countering. That was until the fourth, when Robinson decided to trade and came out on top, taking that fourth round. Even though he had won the first round of the fight, Ray apparently went back to his corner saying he had had enough. But his corner convinced him to go out for another round. Ray Robinson actually explained that I was just manoeuvring him, trying to draw him in with a right. That right was a decoy. I wanted a clean counter shot with my left. I finally got it. I don't know how far the punch travelled, but I'm sure Mr. Former got the message. I just thank God I got that punch in because I had no other strategy. Ray had landed the perfect left hook on the retreating former that knocked him out cold. It was the first and last time that former had ever been knocked out. And he said himself, that's the first time I got knocked out and I don't know how it happened. He's the greatest fighter I ever met. He's got the best record and he's the only one that ever knocked me out. It was one of the best one-punch finishes you'll ever see, which Robinson later actually called himself the most perfect punch of my career. At the ripe age of 37, Ray was back on top of the world, middleweight champion once again, and he enjoyed the moment, pleasantly answering all the questions. Behind him, of course, were those men in suits, who stood near a shower stall, politely allowing him to enjoy his moment in sun. They were there to collect the government's slice of the pie. Earlier, a tax linen of $23,000 was put on the Robinson's share of the purse. Both fighters earned 68990 and even split. Ray eventually took home 45990 So it's at this point now where we've given you the backstory to both Sugar Ray Robinson and Carmen Basilio's career leading up to their first bout. And we're now going to move into the build-up for that. So when Jim Norris told the Chicago press that a fight between Sugar Ray Robinson and Carmen Basilio could do $750,000 in Yankee Stadium, 
Norrie said he was going to try and make the fight as soon as he could. Later, Ray concurred that he was in favour of a fight with the welterweight champion. Basilio, who watched the former fight from ringside, said he wanted a crack at Robinson and was confident that he could do himself more than justice against Sugar Ray. Even the former champion, Gene Fulmer, thought a Basilio-Robinson match made the most sense. Basilio's handlers knew getting both names on a contract to fight was going to be a problem because of Robinson always wanting a bigger split of the purse. Well, John DeJohn made it clear that his guy would get an equal share or there would be no dream fight and he said, Basilio is just as good a gate attraction as Robinson. Don't forget, my kid is the welterweight champion. We have offers out there besides fighting him. If he thinks we're going to fight for peanuts, he has another thing coming. We want the fight, but on even terms. If not, we will move on. George Gainford countered that, saying Basilio will have to remember that Ray is the middleweight champion of the world, that he is in the driver's seat and that the fans come to see him. Any deal with Basilio must be made with that in mind. A few days following his knockout of Gene Fulmer, Sugar Ray declared that the proposed championship fight with Basilio would be his last. He said, I'll defend the title against Carmen Basilio if the terms are right. If I win, that's my last fight. If I lose, then of course, I will try to get it back. Robertson said that the fight would take place in New York in September because of tax reasons and he didn't want the summer heat to be a factor, especially after what happened in the Joe Maxim fight. He never wanted to go through that same thing again. However, Carmen said he preferred about outdoors in July or early August because the venues were bigger and they would both earn more money, of course. Joe Glazer said that Robinson was looking for 35% of receipts, this is originally. The John immediately responded saying the Basilio camp would only accept 30-30 split. Now, while James Norris and his IBC staff were trying to get this fight scheduled and finalised, Carmen Basilio actually travelled across the country to fight a series of exhibitions in Oregon and California. Common remained confident throughout the tour that the IBC would convince Ray Robinson that there was so much money on the table that he would eventually agree and even split. 30% of a potential gate of a million dollars was far better than 35% of nothing. Basilio learned quickly that Robinson viewed the fight from a different perspective. And this is what the middleweight champ explained. He said... This fella has had very few paydays during his lifetime. Let's face it, I'm the fella that's making the gate. Don't I have a right in as much as I'm signing away my services to get all that they are worth to me? And, well, Carmen responded that he has this attitude that he's going into the Yankee Stadium alone and he's drawing the crowd. It takes two to make a fight. I feel I'm justified in getting as much as possible. So promoter Norm Rothschild was anxious to have Basilio fight at least one championship bout in Syracuse. And he sent his team a telegram while they were on this exhibition tour in Oregon. And this is what he read. Gentlemen, I will top any offer you have received for Carmen Basilio to defend his welterweight title. Ready at the date to be selected by you. Terms 40% of all monies with privilege of guarantee. 
confident more money available here for defence with any leading contender. John DeJohn wasn't against his fighter taking a welterweight championship match in Syracuse, but the Robinson fight in New York at Yankee Stadium would generate numbers that Rothschild could only dream of. If Robinson refused to budge on his share of the purse, the fallback position was to accept Rothschild's offer, probably against Gaspar Ortega in July. For now, that decision would have to wait to allow James Norris more time to put the middleweight title fight together. In the preceding days, George Gainford stayed on the offensive, telling the press that if Basilio wanted a crack at the title, he would have to accept 17.5% of the gate. Gainford said, Basilio, according to the IBC, tells me that Basilio wants 25%. He'll never get it. We won't fight him for that. If Basilio loses, it's only one fight to him. He still has his title. But if he wins, he's got the middleweight title. As for Robinson, he's got nothing to gain but a gate and everything to lose. Gainford went on to explain that Basilio was similar to Sugar Ray when he had fought Jake LaMotta back in 1951. Robinson, like Basilio, was now the welterweight champion trying to move up. He said Ray accepted 17.5% of the gate when he fought LaMotta for the crown. Now don't go telling me that Basilio is any more of an illustrious welterweight champion than Robinson was. If anything, it's the other way round. Gainford then added that Basilio better make up his mind pretty quick because otherwise they would look elsewhere. And to think these negotiations didn't go the same way as they do today well, is proof of the pudding. So Sugar Ray's manager also divulged that they were keeping an eye on the up-and-coming fight between Gene Fulmer and Tiger Jones. And Gainford said if Jones wins, it would be the perfect match. Jones beat Ray on a 10-round decision in 1955. It would be an ideal chance for Ray to avenge the loss and would set up a fight for the Yankee Stadium in September. If Fulmer wins then we would look to fight the Frenchman Charlie Humez. There's no demand for another former fight, so that would definitely be out at this time. Gainford then officially threw the gauntlet down about who was calling the shots regarding the fight. If Basilio doesn't like what we're offering and decides to take another fight before fighting Ray, that will be alright with us. But his percentage will go down to 15%. We are calling the shots. So the day following George Gainford's ultimatum, Khan Basilio actually knocked out, so yeah, he fought a fight, a non-title fight, he knocked out Harold Babyface Jones in the fourth round in Portland, Oregon. Some writers expressed pity for Jones, who happened to be the whipping boy for Basilio's irritation over Gainford's remarks. Now, regardless of his motiv- motivation, Carmen responded, I will let John work out the details, but I am not fighting him for 17% of the gate. If that's the position they are going to take, there will be no fight. In early June 1957, the IBC announced that Common Basilio had signed an exclusive contract with them to fight Sugar Ray Robinson. Basilio agreed to accept 25 of all receipts, which could balloon his share to more than a million dollars. Basilio said that he realised that he had to give a little to make this fight happen but would give up no more of his share. However, the fight was thrown into jeopardy when an angry Ray Robinson lashed out at the IBC following a meeting with Jim Norris. Ray said publicly that he was through working with him. He 
he said, Norris knows what percentage I'll want when we get this picture business straightened out. Ray was speaking of the video footage from the second former fight. He then added, I told him two weeks ago that I wouldn't take less than a 45% cut no matter what Basilio got. I won't do any more business with the IBC until they pay me for my picture, even if Carmen Basilio is signed to fight me. Ray was probably a little pissed off with everyone, doing him over financially. He had added a theatrical lawyer named Marty Machette to his ever-growing entourage and it was Marty that would eventually sort out the contract for the Basilio fight. It was also Marty that pointed out to Ray that his entourage was making more money than he was. Killer Johnson was added to the payroll two years earlier as one of three managers alongside Gainford, Ernie Bracker and Joe Glazer and Marty said, you've got George and Killer splitting 33.5% with Bracker and Glazer getting 10% which adds to just over 53% more than half of your money. Add the money you give to Wiley and June Clark and everybody else around you and there's not much left for Ray Robinson. His advice was to get rid of a few, particularly Bracker and Glazer who did nothing. Before the Basilio fight, Ray took Marty's advice but was sued several months later by Bracker for $18,000 and by Glazer for $80,000 who later foreclosed on his properties when Ray refused to pay him back. While the fight was still up in the air, Emil Lentz, who had now turned his attention to the middleweight division, was observing the problems that the IBC were having with Robinson. He offered Sugar Ray Robinson a staggering 47.5% of the gate receipts if he would sign with him. So Lentz had put himself in line to become a major rival to the IBC, who was providing the perfect third-party foil for Robinson to negotiate a better deal. So Ray announced that he was jumping ship from IBC to Lentz, showing that James Norris and the IBC's days of controlling championship boxing matches were disappearing. They had been found guilty the previous March for violating the Sherman antitrust laws by monopolising the conduct of title fights. Gary Humans explained what was happening behind the scenes within the IBC in his book, and he said that the federal judge, Sylvester J. Ryan, had recently began hearings to listen to opening arguments on the penalties to be included in the, the final judgment against Norris. Arthur M. Witts, their two IBC corporations, as well as the Madison Square Garden Corporation. So William J. Elkins, chief attorney for the Department of Justice, wanted the Norris and Ritz promotional association with Madison Square Garden representatives to end and Elkins wanted the pair to be forced to sell their joint stock interest in Madison Square Garden Corporation. Now Norris and Ritz's legal counsel Kenneth Royal called the proposed selling of the garden stock as excessive and appealed to Judge Ryan to allow his clients the option of selling their stock to the Madison Square Garden Corporation or getting out of boxing completely. So Judge Ryan explained, quite frankly speaking, I don't look with favour upon any decree compelling Norris and Ritz to throw their stock upon the open market because not only they might be penalised, but it is also possible that others not involved in this case would suffer substantial losses. So that was sort of put to one side and Elkins had actually amended his position regarding the stock they had, stating that Six months would be more reasonable time for the two defendants to sell their stock. 
if the stock was not dispersed within that time frame, then it would be placed within a court-appointed trustee to be disposed of promptly at a fair and reasonable price. The trustee would have the sole right and duty to vote the stock pending its sale. Truman Gibson, secretary of both the New York and Illinois IBCs, testified that the two corporations had only two fighters under personal service contracts, Carmen Basilio, the welterweight champion, and Sugar Ray Robinson, the middleweight champion. Gibson pointed out, in the past year, the two corporations had exclusive contracts in most weight classes. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. On June 24, 1957, federal judge Sylvester J. Ryan ordered James D. Norris and Arthur M. Wirtz to sever all connections with Madison Square Garden Corporation. He also ordered them to dissolve the International Boxing Club of New York and the International Boxing Club of Illinois. They were given five years to dispose of their stock in Madison Square Garden. Norris and Wirtz, within 30 days of the final decree, had to resign as officers of Madison Square Garden Corp. They were still permitted to operate as a Chicago Stadium group. The following day, James Norris finally received a bit of good news when Joe Nitro informed him that Carmen Basilio was staying with the IBC and would honour the contract that he had signed with them. However, John DeJohn and Nitro were receiving offers daily for Carmen to fight in a number of cities. Besides Norm Rothschild's interest in him fighting in Syracuse, they had offers from St. Paul, Minnesota, Newark, New Jersey and Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Promoter Nick Trolio guaranteed Basilio $75,000 to fight Joey Giardello in the Quaker City in August. None of these offers were taken seriously by the Basilio camp, but it offered them bargaining chips. John to John, I mean, they started to come to terms here a little bit because he understood why Robinson and Gaither were holding out for more money before they would put pen to paper for this fight. But it, he also knew that this guy was uh, an instrumental part to the puzzle, regardless of what they said. What well, his guy, as in Basilio. So everybody knew Robinson needed money with the IRS up his ass, And Basilio, at 35 or 40%, was still the best money fight for him. The IBC were offering 40% to Robinson, but he was demanding now 45%. The 5% had to come up somewhere. So Norris met with Basilio prior to the meeting, with Sugar Ray, and Carmen informed Norris that he would defend his worldweight title against Casper Ortega if he couldn't get Robinson to sign this soon. Everyone involved understood that they needed each other more than they were letting on, and that this fight was what America would pay to see. This understanding came to fruition finally when it was announced that Sugar Ray Robinson had finally agreed terms with the IBC to fight Carmen Basilio in New York City in September 1957. Now the exact time and date where the fight was going to be held was not disclosed but Robinson would receive his 45% 
of the gate, which he wanted. He demanded, he got it. And Carmen Basilio receiving 20% of the gate. James Norris then publicly claimed that in regards to Judge Ryan's recent verdict, which we went through, he believed that he didn't apply, or it didn't apply to this fight because the negotiations had begun prior to those hearings. So a return bout clause was also introduced and included in this contract, and that was a 30-30 split if Basilio was to beat Robinson. So the Sugar Ray Robinson-Carmen Basilio middleweight title fight was scheduled to finally take place at the Yankee Stadium on Monday, September the 23rd, 1957. Robinson said he expected to come in at his usual weight of 159 pounds, which is one less than the middleweight limit. And Carmen hoped to enter the fight 153, seven and a half pounds above his normal fighting weight. Interestingly, if Basilio was to defeat Robinson at that weight, he would have the distinction of being the lightest middleweight champion in ring history. Moving up in weight class didn't concern Carmen or his handlers. And Joe Nitro said, those middleweights, they may be bigger, but they can't get into the condition Carmen can. The other day, mind you, we were up in Syracuse and Carmen comes into the gym. He spends an hour and a half punching the big bag, the speed bag. And that was after he walked 15 miles shooting for Partridge up in Madison County. Nobody's going to hurt a fellow in that type of condition very badly. Even though the deal was done, Ray still continued to pressure James Norris on every financial aspect regarding the fight, now questioning the IBC's choice of what company should present the pay-for-TV bout. Norris had assigned the rights to Theatre Network Television, a company that the IBC had used for the Rocky Marciano Archie Moore fight in 1956. There would be approximately 375,000 seats available for the bout representing some 151 theatres. Sugar Ray argued that Teleprompter Incorporated would be a better choice to handle the telecast and threatened to pull out of the fight if Norris didn't switch. That was until Ray was given a larger number of tickets for his distribution and he backed down. Just a little bit of a diva back then, Sugar Ray. One morning, while James Norris was working in the IBC offices, Finalising some details of the upcoming fight, he began to complain of chest pains and was rushed to the hospital. The immense strain from all the pressure he had been under recently had caught up with him and he suffered a heart attack. He would spend the next seven weeks in the hospital, recovering and conducting all IBC business from his hospital room. Well, when Carmen was between fights, uh, he would actually stay in shape working at the main street gym in Syracuse, often referred to as the Robbins Gym, which was like his main home gym. But for the Robinson fight, he set up camp at Alexandria Bay in the heart of the Thousand Island region of upstate New York. Basilio enjoyed training in this picturesque setting and because he liked the people, it also allowed him to go fishing when he, was, uh, when he wasn't training. He recalled that it was the perfect spot for me to train because I could get my work in and then fish, which is something I love to do. Plus, the people there were so friendly to just not me, but everyone connected with my training. It was great. So when the New York Athletic Association sent Dr. Charles Heck up to Alexandria Bay to give Carmen his pre-fight physical, he was amazed at what he found. And Dr. Heck explained that 
I've examined intercollegiate champions in track, crew, football, as well as amateur and professional boxing. I can honestly say that this young man is in the finest physical condition possible. I've never seen an athlete in the condition this boy is. He's remarkable. So following Dr. Heck's physical and full of praise of Carl Basilio, the world welterweight champ demonstrated to the doctor why he was in such good, good shape as well. He actually put him through a grueling two-hour workout, which included five rounds of sparring with two different fighters. So in the first session, he pounded sparring partner Archie Whitefield for three rounds with solid punches to the head and body. Afterwards, a tall middleweight from Chicago remarked that he was glad he wasn't fighting him. In the second sparring session, Basilio went two rounds with his long-time sparring partner, Leo Owens, also pounding him with a vicious combination to the body. And in the second round, Basilio hurt Owens with a left hook and had him against the ropes as the bell sounded, ending that sparring session. So his battering his sparring partners are looking in great shape. Sugar Ray Robinson, who was in his fourth reign as middleweight champion, set up his training camp in Greenwood Lake, New York working five days a week, taking Sundays and Thursdays off. Each day he would rise at 6am, run six miles before returning to his mountaintop cottage, which he referred to as his cabin in the sky. After breakfast, he would rest until 3pm when he would do his gym work. One day he would work on his jab, another day he might work on sharpening his hook or focusing on defence. When he completed his sparring, he would hit the heavy bag and the speed bag ending his two-hour workout with an entertaining rope-skipping exhibition. He treated the fans who spent $1.10 to attend his training sessions with non-stop entertainment. Carmen didn't like Ray from the moment. He was mugged off by him in 1952. He finally had the opportunity to teach him a lesson, and he said he was in love with himself. He was arrogant, a real egotist. He thought that nobody was better than him and everybody had to get down on their hands and knees for him. I'm a stubborn asshole too and I'm not going to get down on my hands and knees for anybody. In the preceding days leading up to the fight, various opinions were provided on who had the upper hand. Most observers had the same thoughts about how this fight would go down. If it went 15 rounds, Basilio would win because the ageing champion would tire in the later rounds. If the fight was stopped... It was because Robinson knocked Basilio out. Writer Nat LeBeur explained it this way and said, The match plays up. All the if and and buts. Robinson is too old and Basilio will soften him up around the belly, some insist. And Nat LeBeur continued, Robinson was the canny ring craft, plus he had the ability to put his man away with one punch. Ring tradition has it that a good chin and a solid left hook are the best assets any fighter can possess. Robbie and Basilio have both. So Ray was clearly the better boxer of the two, but Basilio was the tough and rough type, similar to Gene Fulmer and Tiger Jones, and both obviously had beaten Ray Robinson. However, Sugar Ray had the advantages in his height, his weight, reach and his speed, but Basilio was younger and as tough as old boots with an iron chin who had never been knocked out. So the Pro Robinson fans pointed out that Basilio may have been hit hard by tough welterweights, but he had not been smacked by a tough middleweight like Sugar Ray Robinson. So Robinson had a six and a half pound advantage, tipping the scales at 160. Thought he was coming at 159, he came in 160. 
Basilio weighed 153 and a half, the heaviest of his career, and he entered as a 6-5 favourite to defeat the champion. Well, they were both champions, but they're fighting for the middleweight title. But the odds had dropped slightly within 24 hours, as many people began sticking their money on Sugar Ray. Now, when the two fighters entered the ring, the middleweight champion of the world, Sugar Ray Robinson, was dressed in a white satin trunks with a black trim. Ocon Basilio wore his customary black trunks with the white trim. Now, Arthur Gary Humans, great description to begin this fight, and he wrote, Basilio entered first and remained in constant motion, pacing back and forth near his corner, both fists pumping like two pistons firing in an overworked engine. Robinson climbed through the ropes a few minutes later, appeared more reserved, bouncing up and down expressionless, clearly focusing on the task at hand. Neither fighter looked at each other, each surrounded by their cornermen. Following announcer Johnny Addy's introductions and referee Al Barrel's pre-fight instructions, the robes were removed. The cornermen exited the ring, the house lights went down and the two men stood alone staring at each other. All the talk, all the bad feelings, all the hard work. It didn't matter now. It was now about the two of them. Nobody else. It was time to fight. So I'm going to start off giving a breakdown of how this fight went down, going from rounds one to seven. So Robinson actually opened quickly scoring with a series of jabs to his opponent's face. Basilio tried to counter, but his punches were picked off by Robinson. Basilio pressed the action and finally scored with a grazing right to Robinson's jaw, who came back with a left to the body and two more jabs to the nose, causing a trickle of blood to come from the challenger's nose. The champion's jab remained effective throughout the round, but the challenger didn't back away. In the second round, Robinson again started fast, but Basilio hurt the champion to the ribs, forcing him to back up. Robinson continued moving to his right, his jab peppering Basilio's face as he tried to set up his big right hand. The resilient challenger pressed him, ducking in close where he worked the body. The two fighters traded punches back and forth for the remainder of the round. Through the first six rounds in this intense battle, Robinson held a slight edge, but he was wasting a lot of energy trying to keep Basilio off him. Beginning in the seventh round, Robinson's punches began to miss the mark and was finding it difficult to hit his shorter opponent who began to crouch, creating an even smaller target to hit. The champ kept trying to force his punches, but his timing was off. Basilio's attacks were now forcing Robinson to backpedal and use his jab defensively. So moving into rounds 8 to 13, and Basilio continued to attack the body, slamming in a lethal left and rights pretty much all the way from the 8th to the 10th. He was just going to the body, working the old man's body. Uh, the 37-year-old champion just continually sort of retreated all over around the old pot, pot shots, the jabs, really. Now, reaching into the 11th round, Robertson went back on the attack, hurting Basilio with a blistering left-right combination, smashing the challenger with heavy body shots himself that rocked him back on his heels. Apparently, Joe Lewis, sitting next to Robinson's wife, Edna May, sensed his friend's physical resurgence and the brown bomber jumped out of his seat, encouraging his close friend to attack. Sugar Ray did just that. He moved inside where the two fighters savagely traded punches, throwing leather from all angles. Basilio's blood flowing from his nose and left eye. Robinson, blood steaming from his nose, 
and they both appeared to want it to end there and then. They went toe-to-toe and it was Robinson who appeared to be on the verge of a knockout win. But the challenger fought back and landed a tremendous shot of his own that knocked Sugar Ray backwards as a delirious Yankee Stadium crowd rose to its feet. They continued to throw punch after punch until the bell rang ending the round with each fighter being held back to their corner. The fight had been back and forth as these two incredible athletes, both exhausted, bleeding, each refusing to give in, took this fight onto a whole other level. Basilio had rallied back to win an unforgettable 11th round, but Sugar Ray kept up the attack on the 12th as he again hurt Basilio with a long right to the jaw, staggering the welterweight champion and forcing him to retreat to, against the ropes. Robinson closed in, but somehow Carmen stayed on his feet and finished the round throwing wild lefts and rights at the champion's head, missing wildly before wobbling back to his corner. Now into the last two rounds of the fight, and when it moved into the 14th round, Robinson slowly moved out to centre ring. The challenger's face was a bloody mess. He met his rival to do battle, where they fiercely battled on even terms for the remainder of the 14th round. They closed the fight in the 15th round just the way they started it, smashing the shit out of each other. And author Gary Humans explained perfectly when the final bell sounded what the reactions were. He said when it was over, the two fighters retreated to their respective corners, each believing that they had won the fight. Yankee Stadium, so alive through 45 minutes of intense fighting, strangely became silent as everyone waited for the results to be tabulated. Basilio, in his corner, paced back and forth, his head down, silently praying to himself. Robinson, in his corner, kept moving back and forth like a caged tiger, waiting to be fed. He had been through 15 rounds of hell. He hoped he would never have to do this again. He awaited the decision. Johnny Addy called out the cards. Judge Artie Adila scores it 9-5 to five and one even. Basilio. Referee Al Beryl scores it 9-6. to six. Robinson. The second judge, Bill Recht, scores it 8-6 to six and one even. The new middleweight champion of the world, Carmen Basilio. Basilio. Announcer Don Dumphy caught up with the new champion seconds after the decision was announced. Congratulations, Carmen. Tell our NBC radio audience, how do you feel? Carmen Basilio's response was, Thanks, Don. I'm a little tired. It was a tough fight. I thought I was a little out of form, but I thought I won the fight because I pushed all the way. I made the fight. I pressed the guy. And Don Dumphrey asked uh, Basilio, I know you made it, but you were badly hurt at the end of the 12th and 13th. You seemed like you might go down. Carmen, as he does, responded, no. <laughs> he hit me with a good punch, but I was off balance. And it, it made it look like I was going to go down. But I was never hurt that bad that I was going to go down. They hurt each other very badly. Don Dunphy then said to Basilio, Carmen, Robinson seemed to have the better in the early rounds. What do you think the turning point was? Basilio said, well, after the sixth round, I started to get smart. I started to get down low because I was standing too upright. And that was pretty much it. Don Dumfries said, well done, Carmen, good luck. And Dumfries looked next to get an interview with Shigori Robinson, but he had exited the ring 
visibly upset over the decision. Didn't get that interview. And the winner and the new middleweight champion of the world, obviously, can't see a very emotional man. Tears running down his cheek, got onto his knees, left the centre of the ring and prayed. A very religious man as well. So he prayed for himself and no long, and of course, Ray Robertson as well, because he did that. Now, this was a brutal fight that took a lot from both men. It was so good that the Ring magazine named it Fight of the Year for 1957. The bout was a financial success. A live audience of 38,072 paid 556,467. The pay TV grossed $305,000. Joe Nitro praised his fighter. He said he's real smart, Carmen is. They don't credit him for that. Remember in the fight, he was straight getting hit with jabs. He went down low and got hit with a couple of bolos. Then he went into the medium crouch. Did you ever see Robertson miss as many punches as he did in there with Carmen? Nitro then added that many times in the late rounds that Robinson bombed Carmen pretty good, but he punched right back. I think that took more out of Robinson than anything else that Carmen did in there. Robinson didn't expect him to come back the way he did to retaliate. That was Carmen's secret. Basilio praised the former champion when he said, those big fellows get so much leverage that they can hurt you but you've got to let them hurt you. I fought Robinson. There's the best of them. He hurt me, sure, but I found a way to beat him. The New York Times wrote that the 11th round was the single most thrilling session of the night. Basilio shook Robinson with a left to the head, then they closed and wailed away at each other in a savage exchange. The Inland Revenue took Ray's whole purse of about half a million dollars by filing a notice of leaving. The men in suits served notice on the IBC to hold all of Robinson's money and took the lot before Martin negotiated the release of $100,000 back to Ray. With the federal government's continued pursuit of Ray, he had to try and find a loophole where he didn't lose so much money. Ray found that loophole, but we will come to that in a short while. Meanwhile, the new middleweight champion and still holder of the welterweight crown, Carmen Basilio, basked in his glory and was a guest on the Ed Sullivan and Steve Allen television programmes and was interviewed by Mike Wallace and countless other top flight broadcasters. His face was on the cover of all major sports magazines and he was voted Ring Magazine Fighter of the Year. He also was receiving daily business propositions. Carmen reflected and he said, you'd be amazed how many business propositions you get for going into business. And it's funny that all these businesses need money. Your money. You get propositions from a peanut stand to a bowling alley. It is only in recent fights that I started to make real good paydays. I fought too hard for that money to sink it into businesses I know nothing about. Carmen continues, said, my wife Kay is smarter than I am. She has a tremendous instinct for what's good for me and what isn't. I'm grateful too to my co-managers, Joe Nitro and Johnny DeJohn. They are my watchdogs. There was another 90-day rematch clause in the contract that Ray Robinson activated, but Carmen was still fuming about that percentage split from the first fight. Basilio took 215,629, whereas Ray received 483,666, so four, just, just shy of half a little bit. I mean, you know, Revenue took most of that or IRS, as they call it in America. And Carmen explained he took the big money for the first fight and he's getting nothing this time. 
He can make all the demands that he wants, but he won't get all that he wants this time. They are talking about a fight in Chicago in February. But to tell you the truth, I don't care if we have it or not. I mean, there was a pre-contract sign for 30% each anyway, so there's nothing more you could do. So George Gainford had actually complained throughout the fight, their first fight, to referee Al Burl that the ointment that Angelo Dundee was using uh, on Basidio's bleeding left brow was actually getting into Robinson's eyes, causing him discomfort and his eyes to water. He stated that I'd like to see Ray fight Basilio for the title again if we can uh, get assurances from the Boxer Commission that the New York State law against the use of this ointment will be carried out. So he's, uh, Basilio, when told of Gainford's accusations, said that Sugar Ray's trainer was full of shit. <laughs> he then questioned the, the logic of Gainford's accusation. He said, if it got in his eyes, how come it didn't get into mine? Angelo Dundee has been using the same ointment on me for years and this is the first time somebody has complained about it. I'd say it's sour grapes on his part. Because of how close the first fight was, uh, there was a rematch clause in place already. Uh, rematch just had to be made. Many felt that Ray was actually rubbed as well and many obviously felt he deserved another opportunity. Others obviously thought Basilio was the rightful winner, deserved to get the decision uh, so, quite soon, they had to tangle again. The rematch would also help Ray find that loophole that we mentioned earlier. He told Norris that he wouldn't fight unless he got his money in cash, all 300000 of it. Norris did what he was asked. He put all the dollars into canvas sacks and handed it over to Ray's lawyer, Marty Mashett, who held onto it until Ray could collect. The second instalment of Basilio Robinson was set for Chicago Stadium on March 25th, 1958. Each fighter would receive 30% of the gross receipts, including the closed-circuit television revenues. Sugar Ray, given his financial problems, had contracted the fight under his new company, Robinson Theatre and Sports Promotion Corporation. The money earned from the fight would be paid out over a four-year period. Both fighters indicated that they expected another tough battle while preparing for a long fight. Basilio trained in Miami, Florida at Angelo Dundee's 5th Street Gym before heading to Chicago prior to the fight. Dundee explained what happened while in Chicago. He said, Basilio almost got me arrested in Chicago. We got up early so he could do his road work. I take him out to the lakefront and I'm standing there waiting for him to come back and a patrol car pulls up. This big cop gets out and asks me what I'm doing out here at this time of day. He says, there have been some burglaries around the area. I tell him why I'm here, that I'm waiting for my fighter to come back from his road work. He waits with me, but Carmen doesn't return. Now, I'm getting nervous because the cops are getting impatient and I'm wondering if something bad has happened to Carmen. Finally, the cop tells me to get the hell out of here and don't come back. I get in the car and Carmen is in the back of the car laughing his ass off. Somehow, he sneaked in the car without me or the officer seeing him. Oh, he loved to break balls. Nobody has ever beaten Sugar Ray Robinson twice, and besides the money, there was the challenge of doing something no one had, no one else had ever done in boxing, and that was win the title five times. Robinson daring to be great, and Basilio felt that he had given Robinson too much ring work, too much ring to work with in their first fight, vowing to cut off the ring by a third, he said. 
He said he had miscalculated Sugar Ray's stamina, believing that the more ground he covered, the quicker he would tire. Uh, Carmen explained, at the time uh, of my Yankee Stadium fight with Ray, I figured that I knew about him as a fighter. It seems I didn't. When the final bell rang, he was still fighting at the end. He tried, but not enough or fast enough. Robinson knows I can beat him. That's very important. Ray knows it, and so do I. That is also important. I have it in stamina and in determination. I have not been spoiled by too many heavy paydays. Robinson is considerably older. He is at an age when fighters think of ease and retirement. So Ray did look sharp. No matter what Carmen says, he looked sharp in his final hard workout, knocking out one of his sparring partners, putting him down with a blistering right and left combination. Physically, he was in good condition and confident that he would win back that crown. His close friend, Frank Sinatra, was flying to Chicago to lend him moral support. And when a writer mentioned to Carmen Basilio that Robinson's pal Sinatra was attending the fight, Basilio shot back. How's that going to help Robinson? Carmen Basilio weighed in at 153 pounds, six and a half pounds lighter than his opponent. Sugar Ray at 162 pounds the day before the fight had to go without food for 20 hours to make the 160 pound limit. Basilio was made a slight favourite at 6-5 to five as the two boxers entered the ring. The fight taking place in Illinois would be scored with a weird system, the five-point must system. A fighter would earn five points for each round he won. His opponent could earn up to four points depending on how each judge and referee scored his performance. When a round was considered even, each fighter would receive five points. Howard Cassell spoke with the champion following the weigh-in and he asked, Carmen, in all the excitement of the weigh-in, just one question. I polled ten sports writers from around the nation here and nine of them picked Sugar Ray by knockout tonight. What's your answer? Carmen remarked, nine of them are wrong. So, with that in mind, we do move in to the rematch between Carmen Basilio and Sugar Ray Robinson. Now, when the bell rang to begin the middleweight title fight, the champion exploded out of his corner, landing body shot after body shot. Basilio, through the first nine minutes of action, won two of the first three rounds. Late in the third round, Robinson opened a small cut on Basilio's nose. In the fifth, Robinson shook Basilio with a hard left-right combination that caused some puffiness to his left eye. By the seventh round, the left eye was closing and beginning to bloom as Robinson continued to pepper his face with left jabs through the eighth. Although the game Basilio just kept coming forward, absorbing a tremendous amount of punishment. In the ninth, the two fighters again traded punches before Basilio ducked under a right hand, rocking Robinson with a solid left hook to the head, followed by a right-left combination to the body, winning the round. The 10th and 11th round saw Basilio land solid body shots that forced Robinson to cover up, who was clearly feeling the effects of his punches. Between rounds, George Gainford challenged Sugar Ray to step it up and he told him, he's got your title, attack him, he's hurt, he's tired, he's ready to go, don't let him outwork you. So Robinson stormed back in the 12th, pursuing Basilio around the ring, jabbing his left eye over and over again while working his body with those solid lefts and rights. The challenger then regained control of the fight, connecting 
on Basilio with combinations to the head and the body. And in the 15th and final round, after being accidentally headbutted, Sugar Ray Robinson hit Basilio with a right to the jaw that stopped him in his tracks. Robinson remained on the track, buckling Basilio's legs with a perfect three-punch combination. But somehow the champ, two-weight champ, same time two-weight champ, remained on his feet, battling as the bell sounded, ending the fight. Only way Common Basilio knew. So Judge John Bray voted it 71-64 to Sugar Ray Robinson. Referee Frank Sikora scored it 69-66 to Carmen Basilio. And Judge Frank McAdams had it 72-64 to the new middleweight champion in the world, Sugar Ray Robinson, who had incredibly won the middleweight championship back for the fifth, a record fifth time. It was another tough, hard-fought, close fight that he had come out victorious in. A poll of 30 writers at ringside scored the fight. 28 of them scored it for Sugar Ray Robinson. On rounds, the referee, Sakura had it 9-5 on 1 to Basilio. Uh, Judge Bray had it 11-4 to Robinson. And Judge McAdams had it 11-3 on 1. So quite lopsided, two of them. Uh, it's quite uninteresting. So... We got a quote from the referee, Frank Sikora, who explained his decision because his card was so widely vast compared to the other two. And he said that I gave it to Basilio because he made the fight. He carried it to Robinson and fought three minutes of every round. Robinson was a, a spot fighter, uh, coasting much of the time. I scored it in Basilio's favour because he was scoring with body punches. Robinson's only real... Big round was the last. Um, Basilio had Robinson in a bad way three or four times with his persistent attacks. I'm on top of the action all the time, closer to the fight than anybody. I voted the fight the way I saw it, and the judges voted it the way they saw it. I thought Basilio won. Writer Arthur Daly gave his verdict, and he said, For five rounds, Basilio mistreated Ray. Not that Robinson didn't get in some pretty good licks himself but the superlatively equipped Harlemite is a deadly hitter, as well as a boxer of consummate skill. Just before the end of the fifth, he landed the one punch that won the fight. It wasn't that apparent when it landed, but the effects became increasingly obvious. Basilio hooked into the body savagely and had Robinson in distress. That's when Sugar Ray's most dangerous. He came out of a clinch with Bombay's open, a left hook, flashed joltingly on Carmen's jaw and a right exploded on Carmen's head. It landed on Carmen's left eye and that won the war. After another close fight, it was named the Ring Magazine's Fight of the Year for 1958. Nat Fleischer reported that it didn't quite live up to the standard set in New York, but Sugar Ray showed why he is ring by succeeding he never before had been accomplished, winning the middleweight title for the fifth time. This would be the fifth and final time Ray Robinson had captured a world title and he wouldn't defend it again for two years. After winning the fight, Robinson needed to be helped to his dressing room by his handlers. He barred newsmen from meeting with him for over an hour. Later, it was announced that Sugar Ray wouldn't be able to speak with the writers at the arena. The disgruntled press was told that Ray would meet with them at his hotel room. The new middleweight champion, laying in his hotel bed, described his thoughts about his opponent, their fight, and his future. Yeah, Ray said uh, he was very tough, 
this was one of the toughest fights I have I ever had. I am so tired. I feel like ten guys jumped on me. I pretty near am aching in every bone. I don't know at this time if I'll fight again. After the fight uh, in Carmen's locker room, his head was down again, spitting blood into the bucket, uh, ice pack on his injured eye, and sobbing. And he asked Jim Norris or James Norris, wherever some people call him, to get him that rubber match. He deserved it after displaying amazing courage and battling the last eight rounds half blind and refusing to give up. Carmen said he didn't hurt me at any time. Were it not for this eye damage, I would have repeated. I don't think I lost. I beat him once and I could do it again. Angelo Dundee admitted that I wanted to cut his eye. But I couldn't because the bleeding was internal, uh, right next to the eyeball. Hey, I'm no surgeon. I had the razor blade ready in my pocket, but couldn't use it. All I could do was apply ice between rounds. And when Sports Illustrated said that this was the only guy in a million that could have withstood what he went through, they were wrong. He's the only guy, period, that could have handled that and kept going. He's one of a kind. A Chicago eye specialist, Dr. Richard Perrett, said the eye itself is not involved. There has been a massive hemorrhage around the eye and we want Mr. Basilio to be hospitalized several days for observation and treatment. Sugar Ray Robinson returned to New York City the following morning telling the press that he was weighing up his options regarding the fight of regarding fighting again in general. He had no plans in the immediate future about who he might fight and when that would be and happen. Sugar Ray said he would give it some thought, in his own words, about a third fight with Carmen Basilio. Robinson mentioned a possible screen test, saying that he had read a movie script about a Mexican bullfighter that he had some interest in playing. Well, each fighter received $256,000 as their shares of the gate radio rights and movie and theatre television fees. Basilio and Robinson never fought that rubber match, but they did give us two tremendous battles that will long live in the memory. Now, in the aftermath of their two fights, we are going to give a little bit of a roundup of both of their careers. Of course, Ray Robinson will start with first, but we have done a career profile on him. Now, Ray lost his world middleweight title to Paul Pender, by unanimous decision, but managed to get another shot at the title, which was then held by Gene Fulmer. The champ had beaten Basilio for the vacant title, the portion that was stripped from Robinson anyway, in 1959, before repeating the feat again in 1960. It was Ray's chance to win a world title for an unprecedented sixth time, but after another gruelling 15-rounder, Fulmer held on to his title. Three months later, they fought for a fourth time in another tough close fight that Fulmer won by unanimous decision. Ray continued to fight on when he should have stopped, as we described in that career profile. He was just for money at this point. He was even still trying to recover the money he was owed from the first Carmen Basilio fight in 1957. He eventually retired in 1965. Yeah, just to round off Carmen Basilio, I'll do that. So Carmen Basilio did go on um, to fight Gene Fulmer. He lost to him twice in 1959 and 1960, as you said there, Sean, for the NBA middleweight titles. And he actually retired in 1961 after a decision lost to Paul Pender for the New York State Athletic Commission and the ring middleweight titles. 
His career record ended with 56 wins, 27 by way of knockout, 16 losses and 7 draws. And look, we've done stuff on Ray. We've got to add a couple of quotes on them too. We've pretty much added them all in. I'm going to leave you with a quote from Carmen. Carmen Basilio, the man that went from journeyman to world champion. And this explains his boxing career just in a nutshell. And it's in his words. He says, a fighter starts off with nothing. And he knows that by winning more fights, he's going to get up to the top. He'll have more. He'll fight harder. And naturally, he's more hungry. So he's going to fight harder. That's what makes a hungry fighter. And that's what makes him get to the top. And that is what made Carmen Basilio get to the top and have two tremendous fights against the absolute legend of boxing in Sugar Ray Robinson. And I hope that you guys listening have enjoyed this tale of Sugar Ray Robinson and Carmen Basilio. Certainly educational indeed, learning lots more about Carmen, his style of fighting, him as a character, and the adversity that he overcame going from a journeyman to a champion. Certainly a story that does need to be retold again, which is why we selected this for this season of the Legendary Nights podcast. If you have enjoyed this episode, please do let us know. You can do that on social media. If you do follow us on Twitter, we're at Legend Night Pod, or you can follow us at BTR Boxing Pod and leave your comments there because both accounts do get used for promoting the episode. If you are on other social media platforms, you can find us at BTR Boxing Podcast Network and those platforms are Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube. If you have listened to this on Patreon, thank you for supporting us. We hope you've enjoyed early access to this episode and we hope you've enjoyed it completely ad-free. If you are not a patron and are interested in looking at what we do, please go and check us out at patreon.com forward slash BTR Boxing Podcast. And on there, you can get access to episodes that have not been released to the general public. All of the series-based content does get released earlier for everybody that is a patron. You will also get access to an exclusive series called Boxing Through the Decades, which is going to continue this year to complete its entirety. We've got up from 1900 all the way now up to the 1970s, and we've got a few more episodes left to cover, which we will do this year. So if you are a patron, please hang fire. We will get them done this year. But if you're not a patron and you want to get access to see what that's all about, as I've said, please visit us at patreon.com forward slash BTR Boxing Podcast. Well, that is pretty much it for this episode. Johnston, I'm going to hand this over to you to give a final summary on the tale of Sugar Ray Robinson and Carmen Basilio. Yeah, I mean, look, I love this era. I just generally do. I've got huge admiration for Carmen Basilio, though. The way he was able to come from a guy that was working in a factory at the start of the towel to then end up as a, a welterweight and middleweight champion simultaneously, which is incredible, isn't it? Just just his desire to want to keep going and eventually to go on and beat Sugar Ray Robinson. Yeah, he was obviously, you know, closer to forward than he was 30, but he was still, I mean, look what he'd done to Gene Former, absolutely sparking him out in the fight before they fought. So, yeah, what I just, huge admiration for Basilio, admiration for for Ray Robertson to keep going and, uh, you know, impressive, you know, the knockout of former and obviously the, the, 
the way he could come back and, and be Carmen Basilio, a resilient fighter. He adjusted and, and got the business done in the second fight. It was still a great fight. Another fight of the year for the Ring Magazine. Two on the spin. And one thing, Sean, how many re how many fights of the year did Carmen Basilio have in this hotel? It's incredible. I mean, if you can get if there's any a fighter out there you want to go and watch to just to f for the pure joy enjoyment of a resilient boxer that just doesn't give up, Carmen Basilio's your man. You guaranteed fireworks, and that's what he produced. And that's why this is a legendary towel because of carbon, not just because of Sugar Ray Robinson. And yeah, a great story, isn't it? It's been a great story indeed. If, again, you've enjoyed the episode, do go and let us know. If you listen to us on Spotify, please drop a comment below in the box. I asked you about what you thought of the episode. If you're on any other platform, please leave us a rating, leave us a review. But that is it for this episode. Episode four of the Legendary Nights podcast. You've been listening to the tale of Sugar Ray Robinson and Carmen Basilio on the BTR Boxing Podcast Network. Oh, wonderful shot by Lennox Lewis. A right hand by Holyfield. By Boston Douglas. Look at this. He's knocked Mike Tyson down for the first time in his career. But unfortunately, it'll never happen. Front punches and punches and it is over. I think it's going to be over. I have to say there seems an element of genuine hate between these two Ambrose. For sure. I don't hate the man. Just imagine if you bought a ticket. Stop it, Frank. You can stop it any time. Castillo's in trouble. Weak steps in and the fight is over. Oh! Podcast Network. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.